Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And then... And I sense there's something in the wind. What the fuck is happening, Zach? That feels like tragedies <laughs> at hand. And I though think our I'd like broken. to stand by Rob, him, can't shake this feeling. I think, that I think he's trying I to romanticize have. us. I know he the worst Whoa. is just around Rob, you, the bend. This- and does he know my feelings for him? And will he see how unsubscribe button means to I am taking that unsubscribe button to pound town. I think it's pushing it repeatedly. It won't stop. Is this is it finally over? What will become of my dear friend? And the words of Tom Atkins from Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Stop Although it! Stop I'd it! Stop like it! To stop join it! Stop the crowd it! In their enthusiastic I, cloud. I feel like I don't, I try no as what? I may, it doesn't last. This is unacceptable, Rob. And will we ever? I am just about up to get. I am putting a bullet in the revolver. No, I think I'm so close, not. Rob. Oh, I prefer. I will go it's with Rob right now. Oh, 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 oh. I'm going to go. I'm Bang! Kidnap the Sandy Claws. Lock him up real tight. <laughs> I had to do it. I never think I'm going to get another chance to sing an entire song as the opening because it starts with the word I. I mean, we'll probably have that a bunch. Maybe if we had done Moulin Rouge in the 2001 Fort Year, Zach. Oh, man. I just want to say that this is not the first time neither Ben or Zach have heard me sing a rendition of Sally's song. I very drunkenly send a version of me singing this to almost everyone I'm friends with on Facebook and Snapchat the other night. I I know you guys got that. (laughs) Yes, I did. It was pretty solid. This is where Rob and... uh, Not Rob. Not Rob. Zach and Ben go... Jesus Christ, it is exhausting doing this podcast with you. <laughs> That's the truth. I think the quote is, 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 it's exhausting being your friend. Uh, I know, I had I to tweak right. it a little bit because it's your quote, not mine, Van, of course. But, yes. but we are here. We are kicking off a new series. It is the Henry Selleck series. For any of our astute listeners, if they go back way, way many months ago when we covered Monkey Bone, I said that after the 2001 Fort year is over, we were going to be finishing up the four-movie filmography of Henry Selleck, and we are kicking off with his first, none other, than The Nightmare Before Christmas. Now, I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of places I want to start. I think the main thing is... I just wanted to touch base on something that I brought up in our Monkey Bone discussion that Zach pushed back on a little bit. I described The Nightmare Before Christmas as the most marketed property ever. And I think Zach came back with something about George Lucas. 
What 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 movie? <laughs> what movie of George Lucas was marketed more than Nightmare Before Christmas? You talk about Red Tails. Who bought Radio a Cuba Gooding Jr. you know airplane? <laughs> Howard the Duck. Oh, Howard the Duck. I mean, who doesn't love their American graffiti action figures? No, of course. I have to concede, Star Wars is probably the most marketed thing in existence, but Jesus Christ, A Nightmare Before Christmas has to be a close second because it created the entirety of what we know as Hot Topic back in the day. <laughs> and just just to give a sense to, to uh, Zach and Ben, just to give a sense to our audience as well, even though this is an, an audio medium, I would very much like to kick this episode off by saying, one... It is very hot out here in Colorado, but I am wearing my Jack Skeleton hoodie, which I'm showing off to the camera right now. And I also have, down from where it is always hung at the top of my stairs, a barrel mask that I made when I was in fifth grade in 2003. Yeah, look look at that. I'm going to have to post a picture of me with this to the Reddit because I still own this to this day. I've loved this movie since I was young. I love it to this day. And, man, get ready for some hot debate, I think, from our two co-hosts. So w- before we jump into things, I know I'm all over the place. Zach, how are you feeling about not being in the 2001 fort year anymore? I think that's the, the prime question of the day. Uh, long live the 2001 fort year. <laughs> ben, your thoughts on the 2001 fort year ver- versus doing things from interesting filmmakers, if I might punch this series up a little bit? <laughs> I'm just happy Zach doesn't get to make all the choices anymore. <laughs> oh, that's what you think. This only lasts a three, for a three more weeks, and then I go back to my... Sober, uh, God <laughs> I am back in the saddle, baby. I think, I think, Ben, that uh, leads us into something really important, speaking of not only when Zach does not get to make choices, but also tying into this series. Ben and I, of course, are the leaders, the hosts of the Cinemodities Patreon. And not only are we putting this forward at the start of this episode for, you know, a shameless advertisement to go support the podcast and earn access to bonus content, the episode that came out at the start of this month on September 1st is none other than Ben and I doing a deep dive into the history of Henry Selleck and his short films, his music videos, and his canceled projects. That was good fun. So we, I, I think, you know, I'll throw it over Ben in a bit, but I'm saying if you want the full Henry Selleck series, because it will get cut off at the end because we have to do goosebumps at the end of September because of me, you know, Ben and I jump into all this detail, all this great discussion of surrealism and stylistic fingerprints over on the Patreon. It's kind of cool, isn't it, Ben, to give that little bonus to our, our, our hardcore fans, I guess? Uh, this is, I think, the first time, but it won't be the last time that we're doing tie-ins to the main series. Uh, I think Monstober is also going to see some tie-ins with, uh, I don't know if we want to spoil that movie yet. I, yeah. I don't know if we want to. Um, uh, yeah, let's not spoil it yet because it hasn't been recorded yet. But I, I know it's a movie that has one of my favorite jokes of all time. Uh, look, that's the uvula. What does that mean? It's a girl house. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, I think that this is something we're really going to be exploring in the future is when it's appropriate having tie-ins on the Patreon to the main content to give you that kind of full-fledged, uh, feeling that we can't always deliver in just one month's time, and I I'm really excited for that going forward, and I and I think that this was a first uh, a, a good first run at it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Of course, if you are subscribing to our Patreon, if you now want to go subscribe to our Patreon, you get all that extra stuff. And I think, I know I say it in that Patreon episode, but this is one of the things I have to repeat here. Man, I'm so happy to get into Henry Selleck. One of my favorite creative forces of all time, the great director Henry Selleck, the animator Henry Selleck. We're finishing up his filmography, like I said. And I think, what better way, unless there's any... I don't know, cleanup we need to do, whether it be from Ben from Patreon or Zach from the 2001 Fort year. I hope there's no cleanup there. Can, can we get into context? Is there any other top-line items that we needed to dive into? No, I'm ready for context. Okay, well, I think my context, I gave a lot of away already, you know, wearing the hoodie, having the mask. Uh, I watch this movie maybe once every four months. It's so easy to watch. I've watched it my entire life. I had it on VHS when I was a kid. I've grown up loving it. I've always loved it, and I will always love it. And of course, we'll talk about why that's the case as we get into more of the great animation themes and music of this Henry Selleck movie. Now, I'm really interested... Because, Ben, there's some, there's some background, there's some bones to pick I have with you based on, you know, social media messages. So I want to save you for last, Zach. This is something that's kind of a blind spot between the friendship of you and I. I, I, I kind of sat down watching this movie. Well, to be fair, I watched this movie four times in preparation for this recording. Of course every, you Rob. Every time I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really know what Zach thinks about the Nightmare Before Christmas. Not just Henry Selleck, because we did some of that discussion in Monkey Bone, but I don't think this is a movie that we've ever dove into, you know, talking about in any great detail, other than me telling you, hey, Zach, isn't it cool that you can go to Halloween Town and Kingdom Hearts? <laughs> so, Zach, what's, what's your history with this movie? Um, yeah, you're right, Rob. We didn't really talk about this a lot when uh, back in high school. Uh, my history with this film is rather brief. Um, I remember kind of, this was like when I lived in Florida still, that this was, this was had to be the, oh God, early 2000s. And that like, this was back when like movies were hard to come by for some reason. I guess I couldn't get this at like Blockbuster. Cause I think, I guess it was still an obscure enough title at that point. Mm. Um, and I remember my grandmother got the VHS for me from New York, like when she lived in New York and mailed it to me in Florida and I can still remember, like, the first night we had it, like, the box art, like, on the back of the VHS scared me. Like, that giant, like, clamshell VHS, like, packaging. Um, and I watched it, and I guess I was underwhelmed by it because I really didn't care about the movie that much. Like, it was something – I think I still have it somewhere. It's in, it's in the box of all my other, like, Disney VHSs. Um, but I didn't think much of it. Uh, like, obviously, as Rob will attest, like, as somebody who was a teenager in the mid-2000s, you could not walk into a Hot Topic without seeing just, like, oh, God, the entire place just made up of different, like, Night Before Christmas merchandise. Oh, yeah. And and to be fair, I sorry to inter- interject, but I've already showed my, uh, my, my Jack Skellington hoodie off to, you know, Ben and Zach. I got this at a media play. That's how long ago I got this. That's insane. That's insane. Media yeah, play that's, on a high topic. Zach knows. South Hills Mall media play. That's where I bought this thing. And, oh, boy, talk about a relic of ancient history. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the God media. Which is more the relic. South Hills Mall or media play. <laughs> media play was a lot of fun. I miss media play. Um, if anybody doesn't know what that is, imagine, like, Sam Goody or FYE but larger. Um, imagine yeah. like almost the size of a Best Buy. Yeah, it was, that was great. They had everything. Um, I missed that store. No, so basically, like, I think when it came to like Night Before Christmas merchandise in that time period, I had, I think I got a t shirt of Jack Skellington, like when I was in middle school. That was really my only piece of merchandise from the film. 
And then, like, I think it was, like, at the end of high school, I think Rob will love this, that, like, on Disney Movie Rewards, I redeemed points for, a, like, a Night Before Christmas, like, water bottle. And I used to bring it – I, I, Rob probably has no memory of this, but I brought, like, the senior year of high school every day. And then my mother left it in the freezer, and it literally just exploded. <laughs> it, okay. it became, like, a bomb in the fridge like, – in the freezer where I could just, like – it just became this weird, like – think of, like, the T-1000 from Terminator 2. It just had this weird sort of just contorted metal shape. Um, but I guess this is the, probably the most notable part of my Night Before Christmas fandom was that in 2017, I actually made a Halloween decoration of the Pumpkin King. Oh, so you're talking about you Jack before really? he gets burnt up, that type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I know I sent you pictures of that, Rob, because at that point, I think it was like right on the verge of the podcast. Okay. Um, sure. Happening. Um, but yeah, because I remember, or no, what it was, I think I have a, I have an action figure of the Pumpkin King too. I think that's, that's probably my most favorite part of the movie is the Pumpkin King visual. And then like after that, like not to tip my hand too much, I kind of check out from this movie. Oh, um, I figured Zach, you were going to give me some terrible, terrible explanation. You are going to give me some terrible text explanation about how this movie is not the greatest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I like I like the first five minutes are incredible, and after that, I kind of like my focus shifts <laughs> to like different sides of the screen. That is ridiculous to me. But okay, Zach, I think I remember that picture that you sent me of the Pumpkin King. I think uh, not the action figure. I think the decoration. I think you sent me that. Um, as Zach also knows, to to tie into this, what maybe three four years ago. Somebody that I was at a Halloween party with showed up dressed up as Sally. And I remember, like, I was fucking, I don't know, stoned out of my mind, drunk on the couch, and this person comes in, and this girl's dressed as Sally, like, full-on blue body paint with the, the rags clothing, like a really good Sally costume. And I think I had just been sitting there, like, you know, drooling on the couch, because that's, that's how fun <laughs> I am at parties. And then she comes in, and I think, like, Justin or Heather was like, who are you supposed to be? And I perk up, and I'm like, she's Sally! She's Dr. Finkelstein's creation from the night before Christmas! And we have a bunch of pictures together, and I sent one to Zach, and Zach's response is, either... You have the worst Halloween costume or the best Rob Halloween costume. Because I was dressed up as nothing. It was just me in my usual, like, white hoodie, you know? <laughs> exactly. Oh, but it was great. It was great. So, Zach, okay, table table all your thoughts. You know, I know I'm coming here as the most positive on this movie. But, Ben, I want to throw over to you now. And I, I hate to put you into this mold, but I have to. I have to preface it with this, Ben. The date is June 23rd, 2021, about noon 30. Ben <laughs> sends me a Facebook message apropos of goddamn nothing, which I learned later there was something that made you send this to me. And he just sends these words. Nightmare before Christmas might suck a lot of dick. And I remember, I remember seeing this when you sent it to me. I remember, like, at, at 12.30 my time, I must have been, like, I don't know, either getting in or coming out of the shower or getting ready to do something. Like, like it, it was one of those just brief moments where I see my phone light up, and it's a Facebook message, and it's Ben saying that. Nightmare Before Christmas might suck a lot of dick. Nine hours later, in the same day, I think of how to respond to him, and I say, whoa. Don't come at me with those words. We aren't even recording that soon. <laughs> 
so Ben, I would like to give let you give the chance to explain why you sent that to me because I, I think you gave me some history on that and also your context on this movie. And to tie it off, you know, d- do you think this movie might suck a lot of dick? Are you still on the fence? I don't know. <laughs> uh, context, start there. Um, next to none, I know that a lot of people liked it. Uh, that's or or what I can say is that there were a lot of people that love the Jack Skellington art, I yes, guess. That yes. They wanted that on everything. I have no idea if they actually liked the movie. Um, <laughs> they, they just, you know, I saw that everywhere. Hot topic, of course, but, but with particular people uh, as well. Zach just sent us real time in chat his, his uh, Pumpkin King decoration. Yeah, this is some good shit, Zach. I'll have, to put this in the, I'll have to put this in the Reddit with my uh, barrel mask that I made when I was seven. <laughs> no, speaking of which, the barrel mask is really well made for a fifth grader or whatever you said you were. It's, it's really nice. It looks really nice. Um, yeah, so I, I, like I, I knew some emo people in high school that were all about this movie or at least wore sweaters about it and shit. And I uh, didn't care at all. Um, and then the next 12 years of my life happened and I never watched it. Okay. And and then I was getting prepared for recording with Rob, and I was like, "Oh crap! There's a ton of stuff I have to watch." He sent me this this PDF with very thorough, well written descriptions of when I was supposed to watch certain things. Uh, yeah, real quick, Zach, I sent Ben a PDF describing this podcast and our schedule, and he actually read it. The last time I sent Zach a PDF, it was like 16 pages about Adventure Time in preparation for the na- for the finale, and Zach went, "Rob, go fuck yourself. I'm not doing homework." <laughs> that was insane. That was insane. The fact he said, uh, "I just want to say Ben gets a point for reading my PDFs." Zach has never read any of my PDFs. I don't think. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, so- have fun cashing in on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that would be worth something. Um, yeah. So, so I, I read it. And then I had like a week or something until I got back home because I was out of town at the time. And I got back and I glimpsed at it and I didn't read it thoroughly again. And so I watched Nightmare Before Christmas way before we were supposed to. <laughs> and uh, and all while, all while being stressed out about the amount of things I had to watch. So I made it worse by watching something that was not going to be recorded soon and, and didn't was not at all urgent. So I watched Nightmare Before Christmas. Am I on the fence about whether it might suck dick? Uh, <laughs> because, yes, I'm, I'm not kidding, and Ben can corroborate this. The quote from him, just, like I said, apropos of nothing as far as I'm concerned, Nightmare Before Christmas might suck a lot of dick. This, this hit me hard, Ben. I thought you were coming at me hard, and I was like, I'm like, we're not even doing this for like another month or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, so I definitely thought that was going to be like later that week. Um, so I, I thought it was like, I thought it was way more relevant than than it was. And g- given how much you love it now, knowing that now, I can see why those came across to you as fighting words. Um, am I on the fence? It sucks at least a little bit of dick. I'm not. I'm not on the fence about that at all. What I might be on the fence about is the the amount of dick that it sucks. Um, I, I did. I have watched it three times now because I. I like to anything that that Rob is adamant of that he likes. I tend to try to give it a fair chance because Rob does not have shit tasting movies most of the time. Um, <laughs> Following and, and, my pre-recording discussion of watching Rooney Mara eat a pie for fifteen yeah. minutes. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. So most of the time is warranted. There, there are some movies that Rob likes that are 
terrible. Um, yeah. Objectively. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but so, so I, I gave it another chance. On the second watch through, the music and stuff was a little catchier, a little better. I maybe liked it a little more. It felt a little more like... Uh, like brought me back to my childhood a little bit, I guess. In terms of not because of, of nostalgia, but just the types of songs, etc. On the third watch through, this movie is fucking boring. Oh no, no! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, like I said, it's it sucks at least a little bit of dick, no doubt. the The amount of dick, the length of dick that it sucks, I that. <laughs> I don't know, that might vary depending on the iteration that I watch. It may be on even watches, it's just a little bit, and on odd watches, it's a lot. I well, know. one, I just want to mention that every time, because peek behind the curtain, this has been one episode that we've had been, I think this is, now that we're finally doing it, this is the third time we've actually planned on doing it. Like, there was one time we planned on recording Nightmare Before Christmas, I had to cancel. There was one time when Ben had to drop out, so Zach and I did something else. We're on the third time now. I've been keeping up with Ben's feelings about this movie through all of these different iterations, and I thought we were going to land on something positive. You saying this is boring is... If your goal was to shoot an arrow straight through my heart, Ben, bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not to say that there's no redeemable qualities about the movie, and we'll get into that. Th- there are some things about it that are that are charming, that are fun to watch, etc. But overall, would I suggest this movie to somebody? No. Every single day of the fucking week, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. Okay, okay. Uh, this yeah, I don't. Is... I don't want to get too much into what I have to say about it. There, are, yeah, I, yeah. I've got. I have some finding words for you, Rob. And I think, uh, due to turnstiles, I don't even know if we can mention it. It's already been discussed how much, how much contention there was. So I, I have. I feel like I have to live up to that. So I'm going to give you some uh, of my takes yes. from the first watching. Okay, okay. Uh, and I, I'm just going to give. I'm going to give a little bit of context there that that my my opinions did change some. But I think the thoughts I had during the first watching are are interesting enough. That, okay, that okay, that's fair. So. And no, no, that that's actually kind of what I want. I knew that I knew you know that Ben. Since we talked about this, you were not going to be as positive as I was. I knew, even though you know Zach and I never discussed it, I knew from from just our, our friendship osmosis, Zach was not going to enjoy these types of things. Um, when we go through the turnstiles even further, uh, there's an episode later this month where Zach's make, Zach makes fun of me because I like the movie Paranorman, even though I explained to Ben how I was crying my eyes out at the end of Paranorman. So we're all coming from different perspectives. Uh, yeah, thank you, Zach. Thank you. <laughs> so I think there is no better place to start with this discussion than the music. The music is such a big part of this. It's been a while since we've done a musical on Cinemodities, a true musical, you know, where multiple plot points are relayed to the audience through musicals. But before we get into the music of this movie, there's a few things that I wanted to mention to both Ben and Zach and also to our audience. Uh, just Just some fun facts. This first one is fun facts. In 2006, they reissued, Disney reissued the soundtrack for this film. And on that soundtrack, there are five covers from modern artists of the day. And I don't like any of these covers. I want to start with that. I don't think any of them are good. But I just wanted to let everybody know that these exist. You can find them on YouTube. You can find This Is Halloween, 
by Marilyn Manson. You can find Sally's Song by Fiona Apple. You can find What's This by Fallout Boy. You can find Kidnap the Sandy Claws by She Wants Revenge, which might both might be the most insane thing I've ever heard. And then you can find This Is Halloween by Panic at the Disco. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is 2006. Oh, yeah. I Like I said, I don't like any of these. The most interesting one is the Kidnap the Sandy Claws by She Wants Revenge because She Wants Revenge is the definition of, like, like house EDM four to the floor type of musical structure. It's so boring. How could they cover such a uniquely vocally interesting song as Kidnap the Sandy Claws? And guess what? It's horrible. I say that we take a can and name it and a store in them. Not three times and when the answers and the claws will be no more. Here's a stupid thing now if we blow him into smithereens. We may lose some pieces and the chap who beat us black and green. Kidnap the Sunday Claws. Just with that out of the way, we have to mention something that has stuck in my craw for years since it came out. Pretty sure it's late 2004. Uh, sorry, early 2004, from looking at my notes right now. That's why I take notes. The Blink-182 song, I Miss You. This, I think, adds a lot of popularity to Nightmare Before Christmas. And this is kind of the, the almost the, um, the second-hand wave of everybody going into Hot Topic to buy their, you know, Sally and Jack on Moonlight Hill t-shirts. Because if you remember, in the beginning of that Blink-182 song, which starts very beautifully, you have Mark Hoppus singing the line, We can live like Jack and Sally if you want, where you can always find me. We'll have Halloween on Christmas, and in the night we'll wish this never ends. We'll wish this never ends. So this was a huge song. The reason I bring this up, I am not a Blink-182 fan. I don't know, Ben and Zach, are, are you guys Blink-182 people at all? I, I liked them back in the day. Okay. I like a couple I of their songs. Song. Sure, sure. But th this one, I think everybody, it stands out because everybody, because they say, you know, they say Jack and Sally. They say, we'll have Halloween on Christmas. I, I have to bring this up because... I do I do this thing. I, I got some friends out here in Fort Collins where we will just go on fucking benders and we won't want to watch a movie or anything. We'll just fucking watch slews of music videos. And for the last six or seven years, that's ever since I've started doing this with people, one of the things that we will always put on is the music video for I Miss You by Blink-182. And for the first 40, 50 seconds, I think, you know, maybe even a little longer, when you have Mark Hoppus singing the lines I just, I just recited, when you have this really great, like, upright bass and cello, like, orchestral type of thing, it's probably one of the greatest songs you've ever heard. Like, it is so sonically fascinating, and they're referencing Nightmare Before Christmas, and it's so much fun.
nightmare The shadow in the background of the morgue The unsuspecting victim Of darkness in the valley We can live like Jack and Sally If we want Where you can always find me And we'll have Halloween on Christmas And then you get to my favorite punching bag of why I dislike Blink-182. The main vocalist, Mark DeLong, comes in. Where are you? And I'm so sorry! That I hate this song so much because he is so nasally and obnoxious. It's gotten to the point where literally Justin and I will listen to this music video and people we're with will be like, oh yeah, I remember this song. This is good. This is good. And then... We've listened to it and have made fun of it so many times. When Mark, when when Tom DeLonge comes in, Justin and I will just sit there and go, eh! like make Mars attacks noises because we hate his voice so much. So I just wanted to bring this up so I can put the clips in and everybody can enjoy hating this song and Blink One Eighty Two for the same reasons I hate them. <laughs> Where are you? Oh, God. That that was my alt for the opening of this episode, was to sing very nasally and obnoxiously. <laughs> but now, with that out of the way, and I think, you know, even double, triple, quadruple setting the stage for how Rob is going to uh, run this episode, I gotta ask you guys, because, Ben, this was something you brought up after you sent me that first Facebook message, and I want to know what you think, Zach, as well. The music! This is a musical! I know, Ben, I think at the first, when we first talked about it, after you sent me that message I, I read earlier, you kind of, you said something like this was like discount store music. I don't remember your phrase exactly, <laughs> but you were very negative against it. It, it. So, and I know you mentioned that That's a little right. bit in your um, rewatchings of it, but what do you think now is like a final, you know, getting on record for this episode? Because we got a good bit of songs in this, in this movie, short and long, you know, Catherine Short, but, Catherine Long coming at us hard and fast, you know? <laughs> Okay, so I think I think the the notes that I have written down about this are that the first two thirds of this movie feel like they were supposed to be a Nickelodeon short animation, and they forgot that. you are you are eerily a, accurate to what Tim Burton wanted this to be. Okay, <laughs> uh, so they just put in like filler in in the way of this music, and the the lyrics are. At times, rough. At, at times, they do have like the the vocal uh, musical qualities that Rob has mentioned, and uh, at times I can agree with that. That the way uh, lines are delivered in, in the songs are, you know, interesting to hear and, and that type of thing. But for instance, like the song where Jack Skellington's in Christmas Town, I was just like, this song could have been fifteen seconds long, and then we could have actually gotten just just seen some shit instead of having to hear about it and see it for much longer than was necessary. You talk about what's this? Yes. Well, oh my god. Okay, probably my favorite fucking song in the movie. That song should have been 80 minutes longer. <laughs> so like th- like that whole scene of him like he explores so little of Christmas Town in the amount of time that that song takes that they like any other movie would have done that as like him walking down a street and it would have taken 15 seconds. <sighs> And I get it that it's a musical and they're going for this like song type of thing, but I, I want the song in a musical to push the plot forward, not just explain to me what I'm seeing. 
But that's what this is. Okay, okay, we're going to have to get in this when we get to the themes of this, but I think that's why I love the music so much is that because they are, they're not just pushing the plot forward, they're pushing our characterization forward. And I can give you some of that. And that, like I said, there are some redeeming qualities of this movie. And I think one of the redeeming qualities is that we do get some insight into the character through some of the music. Yes. But I didn't need as much of it as they gave me. Oh. Let me put it that way. What's this? Um, They're hanging mistletoe. They kiss. They're get what? Like why that looks so unique? Inspired. Oh god. That's oh, a god. terrible line. Like that's just, a fucking great line. <laughs> rhythmically speaking, that song, that line is terrible. They're hanging it mistletoe. They kiss. Why that looks so unique? Inspired. Like he's learning. He's learn. Okay, that it's gonna come up with yes. a theme. It's gonna have to come up with a theme. No, of course. No, I'm I'm fine with with him learning. What I'm not fine with is that in term in terms of lyricism. That just doesn't sound good. Oh, oh, those are fighting words. <laughs> I love the way this music... Okay, okay, no, I'm sure we'll get into this more, of of course, of course. But I, I think what you're saying is that you're coming around to more of that the music is used in this movie for something. That's something we might not have gotten to yet, but it's... I get what you're saying, it could have been shorter, but you're not saying it's wholly vacuous, right? Yes, Okay. I, okay. that is true. I'm saying that every... Two minutes of music had about 45 seconds of content. Oh, Ben, that's tough. That's tough. So it's, it's not vacuous. <laughs> it's just half empty, if you will. Okay, um, I like that. I like that. Well, then, Zach, I guess it comes over to you. Uh, uh, clearly, you know, Zach, once, one right off the bat, I want to say, you know, Ben and I are the one who do the bonus episodes on Song Street Immodities. Ben and I have talked a lot about music to each other. Every time Zach's on here, he goes either, man, I really love that lemonade mouth of those 18s. <laughs> but Not no, wrong. in all Not honesty, wrong. Zach, what did you think of the of the music in this? Because uh, that's something I think this might be a first for you and I, Ben. This is the first musical we're ever really discussing. Zach and I, you know, years ago, we did the good old Aristocats, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, you know, musicals that... Uh, Pixel Perfect. Pixel Perfect, musics, you know, musicals that I really kind of enjoyed at the end of the day. But what do you think about the uh, Nightmare Before Christmas ones? Well, first, I'd like to say it's so nice that Ben's the punching bag for once on this podcast when I'm involved. <laughs> um, I, I, that he will face Rob's ire. I am very, very relaxed about this. Zach's session. like, somehow I flew under the radar because Ben watched this movie three weeks too early. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a happy camper. No, like how I judge any musical number in a musical is does it advance the plot forward? And I agree. Like I said, I agree with Rob What's for the most part that it does. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I do have to say there's a couple of like numbers here and there where we kind of just tread water. What is this is probably more toward the tread water side. Oh, my God. No. no hell. Oh. <laughs> yes, you're 100% right. Oh. Thank it, you. And I will also agree with Zach that there are other numbers where they move the plot forward substantially more with the song. Like, I, I will give you that. Oh, my. But yeah. now the children are asleep. But look, there's nothing underneath. No ghouls, no witches here to scream and scare them or ensnare them. Only little cozy things secure inside their dreamland. Oh, God. What's this? And then the little elf kid wakes up and he's scared. Oh, my God. It's amazing. <laughs> Rob, please stop jerking yourself off for just two seconds. If I could have given this movie a 15 out of 5 on Letterboxd, I would have. <laughs> And that's that why is... Rob left the math program. <laughs> <laughs> well, done. well done. One out of five people don't understand fractions, and it's Rob. He's trying to break rating systems. 
Oh, God. Five out of four people don't understand fractions. But... <laughs> I was trying to be accurate. Sorry, Zach, to cut you off, as I will probably cut everybody off with lyrics from these these songs. <laughs> um, no, I no, I, I the music to me, I think, is good. Um, it's weird that like if you look at what this film is remembered for, I, it's almost a film that's mis- I probably misremembered as to what is actually objectively good about it. Oh, um, sure. I, I think that I again. I think this is one of those films that just everything about it clicks perfectly. It's just that people have glommed on more to the ambiance. I think this goes to what you were saying about like the covers on the 2006 re-release of the soundtrack. Yeah, and that people people have glommed on more to the essence of the film or what they want or their projection or what they've projected onto the film. Oh yeah. Now I think that's the I think that's probably the biggest problem with this film is that like I would imagine if you ask people what their favorite like like thing about this film is, uh, the majority would probably give you a reason that probably you could have a hard time tying it to the actual concrete essence of the film. Yeah, you're you're not wrong, and that's something that of course I think the bulk of this episode is going to be just like Monkey Bone and all of these Henry Selick episodes will be me going on a diatribe of what I think the meaning of this movie is and how it's so thematically important. But, Zach, you bring up a great point. I think if you asked the common person, the layman, without them having rewatched this movie, you know, kind of what was your takeaway from The Nightmare Before Christmas? They're going to say Jack and Sally's romance, probably because of what they've seen in Hot Topic and probably because of that Blink-182 song I mentioned, where their romance is there very briefly, but I'm not... I'm not even going to, like, sugarcoat it. You have the scene where Jack is getting dressed up as Sandy Claus, and Sally's like, Jack, I don't think you should do this. You don't look like yourself. And he goes, shut up, bitch, make me my suit. Like, he's (laughs) negging her actively in, in two or three scenes of this movie. It's not a great romance in terms of what I think these people who buy the Jack and Sally sweatshirt think it is. You know what I mean? But that's, but that's the thing. Is that I don't think – it's interesting that you bring up the Blink-182 song because I literally had no idea there was that level of like reference to that film in that song. Where are you? And I just <laughs> – It's Rob the worst like fucking song. <laughs> No, but I do like I said, Rob. I think there's a, I think there's also a very key word you have not used at all in this discussion so far. Masterpiece. And it's, no, <laughs> um, it's, it's the D word. Non-disaster piece. <laughs> no. What are you Disney, want? Rob? This is a uh, Disney well, movie. See, Zach, I didn't want to mention that. And I it's want like that, that you could have put. You could have said the D or the T word. We could have gone Disney or Tim Burton down this this tangent now. <laughs> I I don't even think at this point Nightmare Before Christmas. I think Nightmare Before Christmas has kind of just grown to its own extent. Like if you ask people who directed this movie, whereas like ten years ago the misnomer would have been Tim Burton, not Henry Selick. Nowadays, I don't even think people, I would even blow up on people's radar. They're like, "Oh, it's the movie." They were like, "You go to Disney World from October to the Christmas time, and mm. they redo the Haunted Mansion." Like that's the thing. This movie, like, you're right. It, it, it exists less as an actual like like art, like in oh god, cinematic experience. 
and more as just a marketing opportunity that Disney just literally just shoves in people's faces for like three months a year. You are so not wrong there, and that's something I figured we'd have to get to. I I honestly believe the the outcome you just stated, you know, if you asked anybody, you know, what do they think of The Nightmare Before Christmas, you're going to get maybe half the people saying what you just said, and you get the other half people going, oh, that world in Kingdom Hearts. Because it's in Kingdom Hearts (laughs) 1 and 2. That is literally the last piece of notoriety we have for, like, literally in all of human history, the last time Nightmare Before Christmas was relevant, relevant is because people played through it in Kingdom Hearts 2. And I, I have to say, I with that. I'm, I'm in the, the only reason I have ever played Kingdom Hearts was because I saw a commercial for Kingdom Hearts on the Disney Channel when I was young, back in early 2002, and I saw you could go to Nightmare Before Christmas World, Halloween Town, that's why I played that game, the rest I say is history. But Zach, why do you agree with that? Because that, I mean, that's the spheres I'm in, is that when you think of Nightmare Before Christmas, you think of Jack Skellington, you think of, oh, Sora's party member, that aesthetic in the video game. I, I think, Rob, you're not wrong, but at the same time, I think you're very steeped in the. I get it. Okay. I think Nightmare Before Christmas as a brand has become so ubiquitous that I think everybody sees it in their own little, oh God, sphere of existence. Okay. Whereas you see it as like a reference in a Blink 182 song <laughs> and as Kingdom Hearts nonsense. Um, I think the, the uh, majority of gloriousness, excuse me, <laughs> I, I not, have to agree about this. Halloween Town and Kingdom Hearts is dope as fuck. It's my favorite world in the first game. That's it's fine. my second favorite world in the second game. That's fine. I don't doubt that either <laughs> one of you. It's the idea that like the night before Christmas, like exi- Rob, I imagine in your research, you probably realize that like for like God, like 15 years now. Disney re-releases this like in 3D and IMAX for like a week. Uh, well, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. This is the first stop motion feature film. Feature has some air quotes for how long it is to be converted entirely to 3D. Yeah, this is like an OG like 3D converted film to like 2006. I think that was meant to uh, coincide with, with the, the soundtrack like, I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the point, though, is that like if you ask people how they know this film, I would, you'd be very, very hard pressed to, to pick people. Like you, Rob, that'd be like Kingdom Hearts. Mm. I think it's one of these things that's just like cultural inertia. It's just like it's like or cultural osmosis, maybe is the better term for. It. No, I know Rob loves you're that. You're not term. wrong about that, and you're right saying that. Now I'm talking about normies. Normies. No, no, Rob, of course, normies. of course. But uh, you know, you're the people who go to Walgreens and buy Oogie Boogie <laughs> plushes. They're like seven <laughs> inches tall and do a weird sort of jig when they like you push the top. My Oogie Boogie pencil case. Uh, it's filled with bugs. No, you're not. You're not wrong there, Zach. That I'm more steeped in the that that JRPG world of Kingdom Hearts and you know Final Fantasy and. Jack Skellington being a bigger mainstay. I guess that would be the question for you, Ben. You're someone who, you know, you said you kind of forgot about this or, or disregarded it when you were younger and, and forgot about it for so many years. Have, has this been popping up for you kind of just peripherally in, in, you know, since just, I mean, since you were 10 or 12 or something like that? I think just around Halloween. Okay. Like every, every Halloween store ever has Nightmare Before Christmas decorations. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then aside from that, Kingdom Hearts. Uh, in terms of like them re-releasing it in 3D or something like that, I've never had, I've never known about that. So sure. Okay. No, but I, I think I think we can both agree. You, Ben, and I, you can agree. We can agree that Zach's right when you know this comes out in like Disney's releasing a 3D up conversion or something. That's gonna get gonna get attendance for sure. Yeah. Although I don't understand why, because if you didn't, and, and this is not about this movie. This is about 
the existence of 3D movies, if you didn't film it to be 3D, the 3D you're going to get from converting mm. it is not good. I that that's something Zach would know better than I do. But from the upconverted 3 3D things I've seen, I would agree. And but that's where we're getting to another thing, which is another huge tangent. Zach loves goofy nonsense 3D, where like something banks off of a of a wall and comes right at the audience. Yes. I hate yes. that shit. I want immersive 3D. I hate oh, goofy just wow. Look at what's coming at me in a ride. You know, fuck that. I can't stand that stuff. You suck, Rob. You it's suck. like that moment in the first Captain America where there's just for no reason a shot of a tank and you see the fucking shield bounce into it and bounce we off. We didn't even see Captain America in 3D. I know, but that's a moment that makes me, <laughs> it screams 3D to me because it's so stupid. It's like, there's no reason for anything to come towards the camera unless it's for 3D it. after I, a certain I, I, I point. I like how Rob's complaining about a moment in a film that we did not see in 3D. He's oh. like, this is why 3D sucks. It's like, Rob, we didn't see this in 3D. Yeah, Fucking but if they filmed it that way for 3D. Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't. That was a post-converted film. It was post-converted? Okay. I don't, yeah. I don't uh, believe I don't that think, for I, a second. I, I literally think while Joe Johnson was filming the first Captain America, he was banging the embodification of 3D. Like, he had to have that in mind. He was fucking 3D so hard. That's what they wanted. <laughs> Okay, we're getting off topic that, with 3D. That's we're getting a off very, topic. very strange uh, side release <laughs> there for a second. I, I'm glad okay. we're talking about music. Zach, there's more music context we got to get to. Well, Rob, okay, yeah, I know, Rob. I know, Rob. I'm, I think I'm trying to steer this away from Rob going off on diatribes. Zach like, does not straight. want me to talk about the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo so fucking bad. <laughs> Danny Elfman is weird. Like, in my research for this, he's just a, like, he comes across as a weirdo. Well, like, that's the just, like, next he, thing I'm going to talk about, Zach. What did you want to interject with before that? <laughs> uh oh god other than like cultural significance of night before christmas which i'll save for later because i imagine we'll find a place to plug that in um i don't know like part of my thing to rob like, i'm afraid this will go too far from the tangent is like my question to rob is that like rob where do you like as somebody who looks at this is like oh night before christmas kingdom hearts world stuff what does it make you feel like? Like, like this is a staple. It like, like Ben was saying, it like hollow, like spirit Halloween stores, and like the Halloween rack at like Walgreens. I like. How does that make you feel? That like this has been so commoditized that like there's almost like like the movie doesn't exist anymore. It's just the like the IP. That's a good question. And from what you brought up earlier with you know all this merchandising and stuff like that, and just the the non movie aspect, as you just said. That's what pains me, but throughout my whole life, this movie never went away. It was always the movie first. It was always the 70-minute the film with this great music and this great idea and great visuals that I've always latched onto. Do I feel a little, you know, I mean, disingenuized or disenfranchised because it's become so popular and so vacuous as merchandising rather than the movie? Kind of, but at the same time... I think both, you know, Zach and Ben are going to understand when I say this. If I get to be the dude at the party who recognizes somebody dressed up as Sally and can talk about Nightmare Before Christmas lore to someone who is wholly uninterested about it for 20 minutes, I'm happy at the end of the day. Well, okay, this is my question. As long as its cultural what? osmosis exists, uh, I'm still happy. That's my, my final point. Fair enough. But how does it make you feel that somebody comes dressed as Sally to a Halloween party and yet you are infinitely more ingrained and understand the movie and have a deeper affinity for it than they ever someone who actually like paint like was it somebody who actually painted themselves yeah yeah costume? yeah full full body paint yep full body paint okay really good costume, how's it make, yeah 
How does it make you feel that you are a deeper fan than the person who actually painted themselves blue? Not that bad. Yeah. Not that bad. Really? Honestly. Yeah. If anything, it gives me a sense of uh, superiority, you know, that I'm able to uh, <laughs> to mansplain to this woman. Who, well, no, to be fair, the, the girl who I have the picture <laughs> with, another thing, this, this is going to be a whole fucking Reddit post of pictures related to this episode. I think she had a good handle on the character. It was more of the <sighs> people that we were with. Uh, to shout out our favorite punching bag, Justin. Justin had no fucking clue what she was dressed up as. And you know I relish every opportunity when I get to grab Justin's cheekbones and scream information into his face. <laughs> so no, not not that bad at all. I think it's kind of like, um, it's one of those things that I think that... Maybe maybe here's a, a good way to put it. When you bring it up with this this information of existence now versus the cultural knowledge of the actual film... I would put this somewhere on the same level as Shrek. I think a lot of people hang on to Shrek memes but don't remember the movie. I think a lot of people hang on to The Nightmare Before Christmas as a property, and they might not remember the movie, but I'm more fundamentally appeased by the fact that they're remembering something that's fundamentally good versus something that is fundamentally a garbage fire such as Shrek. Well, but I think the difference is that, like, Shrek, gets like brought up in conversation once every like five to ten years for an anniversary night before christmas is like shoved down our throat by the walt disney company on a yeah, yearly basis i know what you're saying i know what you're saying but see that that's not how i perceive it i watch the nightmare before christmas every four or five months because i choose to because it's easy to watch it's fun it's 70 minutes long that's where i'm i'm disjointed from this world that you're talking about zach i i definitely think that zach's kind of onto something where it's like i'm sure that the majority of people that, well, okay, not maybe not the majority of people, but like, sure. I, I don't know, when this movie come out, like 2000, what? 2000? Uh, 93. 93, this movie. 93, what? A, yeah. All right. So, like, a lot of people exist in the world today that know about this movie only through products they've seen on the show. Sure, sure. And, and like, that's, that's kind of interesting because no other movie really has that longevity except maybe the Star Wars franchise. And that longevity kind of exists only because of, of the commercialization of it. So, I, I mean, I don't know. It's I can understand where Zach's coming from, that, that maybe you would be insulted by, by the disingenuous nature of, of people's, like, interactions with the, the content. But at the same time, the content wouldn't even be relevant without that those disingenuous interactions. Yeah. No, Ben, yeah. I, I, I mean, Zach, correct well, me if I'm wrong. Okay, well, go for it. But the, but this is the thing, though, is I find interesting. It's the idea that, like, Night Before Christmas's cultural footprint as of, let's just say, the last two to three years, it feels almost, and this is maybe even less Rob and more just my perspective on it, feels so removed from the reality of the film's existence. Like, it just feels like product. And, like, the fact that there's a movie, like, based off of, like, like I said, the Oogie Boogie Plush you can buy at Walgreens for $20. It just feels almost as like the merchandise is its own entity. It's kind of like these. It's kind of like oh god, um, like a, oh, oh god. Do you remember this? Okay, the Geico commercials. Remember that from like fifteen years ago? They had the cavemen, oh, and that sure. became such a popular thing in like the mid two thousands that they made a TV show off of it. That's where I feel like we're Nightmare Before Christmas is now. Is that like it feels almost like a product first and a movie second? I mean, and is I, that different than Star Wars? 
I am offended by that comparison. I'm if not I'm, saying that's the. Re- I'm saying no, no, no. I'm I know no, Disney's no. doing. I to know. It. I know what point you're making, Zach. But I'm offended by the sheer thing. Didn't they make the Caveman TV show and it got canceled halfway yes. through it airing? Isn't that oh, the yeah. famous story that they pulled the plug on that show before the first episode even finished? <laughs> It was something like that. Like it barely made it off the ground. But I know what you mean, Zach. I know what you mean. And Star you guys Wars are, has always felt the same to me. Though. You guys like, are I've... ganging up on me. <laughs> no, 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 like, oh no! I, actually, I, Ben, that's a really good point. With me loving this movie, Zach loving Star Wars, you might be taking this interesting stance of of this. No, please expand on that. I've I've never really cared much about the Star Wars movies, and whether they're re-releasing the same movie or releasing a new movie that's basically just a remake of a movie from you know before I was alive. It doesn't feel that different to me to see a Star Wars movie in the theaters every year when I'm not going to go watch it, and all it does is remind me that the property exists and that there's toys in Walmart. I, I, I guess I, I don't see a huge difference between those two things. Despite the fact that they're making, like, quote-unquote, new content for Star Wars, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's it feels like the same. And, it, of course, it is the parent company, Disney, so maybe that's just what they do, but they are, they're shoving you know, commercialism down the throat of Star Wars as well. I don't, Mike, Mike I, you're not wrong, but the thing that's different is that, like, with Star Wars and whether it be Marvel or whatever different franchise that Disney is currently just, like, hawking their wares with, it's the idea that, like, Nightmare Before Christmas comes out in 93, and we, outside of, like, what, Rob, like, the, the sequel video game for the PS2, like, Oogie's Revenge. Two, two video games that act as sequels, and then Kingdom Hearts, yeah, that's it. Like, that, exactly, that being the key word, that's it. It's the idea that, like, it's weird to think that Disney doesn't try to, like, re... Like, especially in the age of Disney+, Plus, they're not trying to shove this down our throats again. Like, I would imagine Rob probably has some level of research on the fact that, like, why they never made a sequel on this. Whether it be, like, a Spielberg Back to the Future thing, where it's just like, nope, nope, like, I'm not letting you touch this. It's too... Like, it's a sacred cow. Don't you dare go near it. Like, that's the thing I just find... Again... It's so unique to have a film that is, God, almost 30 years old, and its its original, like, essence core has more creative cultural essence core has been untouched, yet you have, like, the public's contemporary perception of it is, I don't want to say removed from the creative core, but it's so, like, almost misaligned to what it is. And I think that gets to bring us back to, like, Rob's question about the music. I would imagine outside of, like, going into, like, Spirit Halloween and hearing, this is Halloween, this sure. is Halloween, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that could tell you another song from this movie. <laughs> that wasn't, like, a Rob-level fan of it. I know, I know. Zach, I'm, I'm upset that you just said the most basic lines from the song, this is Halloween. I mean, there's so many other great ones you could have chosen from, you know? <laughs> aren't, you, how about, aren't you scared? Well, that's Aren't just fine. Scared, Zach. I thought if you were going to quote anything from "This Is Halloween," you were going to say, "I am the clown with the removable face," because that gives you hard Sarah Palmer Twin Peaks vibes. <laughs> indeed, Rob. Indeed. Oh, say it once, say it twice. Take a chance and roll the dice. Ride with the moon in the dead of night. <laughs> no, you guys are making good points. I, I, I don't want to come across as I'm saying I disagree with anything that you guys are saying. What I really want to hammer down on the fact is, though, that I, I love this movie. I've loved this movie for years, you know? that, that, that There's so much... Like, I want to be the hardcore stand for this movie in this episode, if that was not clear. <laughs> I, I think mean, that I, fact remains unchanged, Rob. I, I don't think it. that 
anything that we've discussed recently is, is really even gets gets to how anyone should feel about this movie. Uh, I think that, sure. that despite the fact that people don't don't really relate to it, I mean, they, why would they? It's twenty seven years old. Like, why would people relate to this movie any more than they relate to the, to the products that are released every year? Yeah. And it is kind of it is kind of a unique pro- uh, property in that they are continually releasing merchandise, but they're yep. not continually releasing content. Taking what what you just said, Ben, with Zach, with the idea that you know the the lasting legacy of this movie is the ambiance, is the atmosphere, the art style, the Henry Stellick uh, Selick stylistic fingerprints that you know Ben and I we talked about this on the Patreon. I think that's what lasts is because people want to see a skeleton. You know, they want to see that design. They want to see the um. We we have a tree that work walks around with you know lynch skeletons on its branches and the skeletons scratch their head and are alive just as well. It, it's very unique, absolutely. And no, I'm not I'm not taking that away from you guys. You're absolutely right. The lasting legacy of this movie is the aesthetic, which I don't particularly enjoy because I love every aspect of this, almost every aspect of this movie. Of course, we'll have to get into my my big problem with it. But you're you guys are right. You're not you're not saying anything. I'm totally against. I just want to make sure everybody knows this movie's fucking five out of five, fifteen out of five, you know that type of thing. It's fucking great. <laughs> uh, and I guess my point there was like none of this is really related to my opinion of the movie. So, oh, sure, okay, okay, okay. So with with that being said, we Zach is gonna. I think I think Ben and Zach they're gonna try and pull away from this movie because they have so many philosophical ideas about the the aura of this movie. We can't talk about the music. Without talking about good old Mr. Danny Elfman. And Zach is going to roll his eyes and groan. Of course, I'll probably cut it out because it annoys me every time he does it. Danny Elfman is one of my favorite musicians. He composed the music for all of this movie. And not only that, he is the singing voice of Jack. But, as I alluded to in our Monkey Bone episode, there's actually a really, really interesting story about Danny Elfman with this movie. Before we get to that, though, I know Zach's going to love this. Danny Elfman is the composer of the music for this film. If you actually go to the the uh, the cast and crew, all the credits for this movie, uh, Steve Bartek is the musical director and orchestrator for the entirety of this film. And one of the main credited musicians is Mark Mann. All three people I just mentioned are members of the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo, which Ben is a a band from the 70s I don't think we've ever talked about. Zach hates whenever I bring them up because I love them so much. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Goddamn Oingo Boingo. Zach does not like when I talk about Oingo Boingo. Good old uh, tune in the series before the 2001 Fort Year when Rob got to gush about the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo doing a a cover of St. James Infirmary for Martin Brest's movie uh, Hot Tomorrows. It's great. But I love the fact, I think that's a reason, I love the band Oingo Boingo. I love the fact that so many of their musicians are involved in this artistic creation. But now here's the thing. I think this is really important to talk about because a lot of people don't seem to know it. Danny Elfman, like I said, is the singing voice of Jack. He originally was also cast as his speaking voice in this movie. But during the filming process, or the sound booth process, Tim Burton and Henry Selick found that they weren't happy with his performance. And so Burton, from all intents and purposes, what I found, Tim Burton was the one to say, hey, let's replace Danny Elfman with the singing, well, sorry, the speaking voice of Jack, and let's hire Chris Sarandon. Chris Sarandon, you might know, if you look a picture of him, you might know him. I know him from a lot of episodes of... 
Law and Order. But Danny Elfman only got to sing, and he did not get to speak Jack parts in, Jack's parts in this film. Danny Elfman was highly upset by this. This is the alleged reason why Danny Elfman doesn't do the score for Tim Burton's next movie, Ed Wood, because he was so upset with Tim Burton. From a quote I found from Henry Selick, he said, Tim and Danny have mended fences over the years, but Danny and Tim's friendship is very weird. I just love this idea. I love when you look at modern Tim Burton and they say, oh, Danny Elfman again? Like, they're just best friends. They do music with each other all the time for Tim Burton's movies. That's not the case. They kind of have this tepid relationship where it's just like, yeah, if you need me to help you out, I'll help you out. We have similar sensibilities. They're not like best friends that a lot of people seem to think they are. I guess I want to throw it over to you, Zach. You've listened to a lot of more um, movie podcasts or movie industry things. Am I off base thinking that, you know, I hear the common thing of, like, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman are best friends? Uh, I don't know about that far. I know, like you said earlier, that apparently, like, Danny Elfman was very, very irate over being removed, like, as, like, like the speaking voice of Jack Skellington. Yeah, yeah, uh, Henry Selleck goes on record saying he was highly upset. That's pretty heavy, yeah. Yeah, that's as far as I know. Beyond, like, that, when it comes to their, like, personal, like, working relationship, uh, that I do not know. I am in the dark when it comes to that. Okay, okay. I think it's, what, maybe three or four Burton soundtracks that aren't scored by Danny Elfman. Uh, one of them is Ed Wood. I think one of them is an earlier one, and one of them is a later one. God, did he do Alice in Wonderland? Is that the other one that he didn't do? Cause the I would know. The studio picked uh, somebody... Somebody else up with Alice in Wonderland? I can't... I, okay, I just started to Google Alice in Wonderland, Tim Burton. I can't even bring myself to do that. That movie is a war crime. Um, I just wanted to tell that story, though, because I always feel that I, I hear, you know, people are like, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, like Tim Burton and the Oingo Boingo, like they're such good friends. No, they have, they have this very just working relationship that I think, you know, more people should know about. But the point I want to make is Danny Elfman composed all of the music in this. He wrote all the lyrics. He does the singing for Jack Skellington. And I think, even though at the start of this whole discussion, before we got on recording, I talked to Zach about how uh, we went through a, a rather boring, structured episode of a podcast, I kind of want to throw it over to you guys. I want to know, what's your favorite song in this movie? I gotta get a sense of where you guys are coming from. Do you have a favorite song? Anything. I'll take either of you. I think you guys know what my favorite song is based on the opening of this episode, but well, you guys, what do you think? <laughs> I, I don't have a favorite song. Oh, oh no! <laughs> no! Maybe, maybe the Sandy Claus song? Because lyrically, it, the, the lyrics sound very musical, and that's pretty interesting. Okay, I'm glad you bring that up. That is, that is like, my, my contender. It always bounces back and forth. My favorite song is either Sally's song or Kidnap the Sandy Claus. This is something I wanted to pick your brain on, Ben, because the song Kidnap the Sandy Claws, sung by, you know, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, it is so lyrically diverse that I, I figured you'd have to have some, some sense of appreciation for it, that you have this many, this, this many voices participating in a song, and every time the chorus comes in, it gets harder and harder. So I'm glad that you at least mentioned that might be your contender for positive song in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's pretty fun, and I have found myself like singing it and making different words for it. You know, like uh, <laughs> like talking like talking about like kidnapping my dog or whatever. Uh, <laughs> okay, and, and just like you know, 
doing dope shit like that because I don't know if the audience knows this too much. I, I definitely tend to just like change lyrics of songs for fun. Yes. Um, yes. And, and uh, so this is one that I have done that with. So that's 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 why I have to say it is in there. And, and the yeah, the musical quality of the voices of it definitely I find very interesting. Yeah, there. I think there's a great thing that you know both you and I uh, appreciate. There's a combination of both singing and spoken word in this song that gives it a sense of elevation over the others, at least in style. You know, I'm thinking of the um, like. There's a lot of lock, shock, and barrel talking to each other, and then they'll all break out into chorus and they'll say like, "Kidnap the Sandy Claws, throw him in a box, bury him for ninety years, then see if he talks." And it'll cut back to just spoken word again. It's very fluid in that sense. I say that we take a cannon, aim it at his door, and then knock three times, and when he answers, Sandy Claus will be no more! He's so stupid, think now if we blow him up to smithereens, we may lose some pieces, and then Jack will beat us black and green! Kidnap the Sandy Claus, tie him in a bag, throw him in the ocean, and see if he is sad! Uh, yeah, and I would say that the only reason, uh, that I maybe don't care for it is that I... I, I didn't get the impression at any point in their assignment that they were trying to extract information from Santa Claus. So, like, a lot of their lyrics didn't make sense to me plot-wise. Oh, okay. You were looking at more literally of let's see if he talks versus the whole idea of they are from Halloween Town that want to commit horror on people? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah, they're just kids that like the horror aspect because they're from Halloween well, Town. Well, I mean, they're specifically saying, like, let's see if he talks, like... That means something to me. Maybe it doesn't to them or the people who wrote it or whatever, but, like... Okay, okay. When I hear someone say, like, let's see if he talks, like, or, you know, see if he'll talk then or whatever, that's always an information extraction situation. Okay, well, no, I, I, I see what you're saying. Well, Zach, I gotta ask you. Favorite, you got a favorite song? Rob, you know what my favorite song is. Uh, Sally's song. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sa- well, hold on, let me correct myself. Sally's song when I sing it to you. Well, okay, you put it that way. <laughs> No, what is what is your favorite song? Is it uh, "Making Christmas"? I mean, I I really don't know. We like I said at the start, we have no history with this. I I have no idea what your favorite song is. This is Halloween, Rob, because of my projector. Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's been so long. That's how long it's been since Zach and I have talked about this. That that was even a a, a momentary blip on his thoughts for Monstober. Uh, yeah, not not Monstober the podcast series. Monstober the I don't know. Uh, ex- Experiential household experience on Hickory Lane. Does that make sense? <laughs> sure, um, I guess. But yeah, this is Halloween, man. Like to me, that's that is just uh, that's where this film transcends even just being a cultural phenomenon. Like that is just like that will always live. Is just like an anthem for the holiday, which is okay. very. Like, I, I'd be hard priced to say that for like it's like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer almost. It's an anthem for a holiday over than like a piece of a soundtrack to a film. I should have guessed that. You're right. That's fair. I should have guessed that. I should have guessed that. Uh, okay, no. You I, suck, Rob. I, I, well, I mean, I clearly don't because I love this movie. Uh, so. <laughs> so so, I think the next thing I want to jump into, and this is all kind of building up, you know, now we've done songs and, and some context. is all building up to my favorite part of what the Henry Selleck series is going to be, talking about the themes of this movie. I think the next thing I want to ask you guys is, like, the characters. The, the characters of this movie – I want to be the first one to say it. I fucking love Sally as a character. Like, Sally is 
one of my favorite characters in all of cinematic history, I think. And probably I go even as far to say that my favorite part of the movie is when she slowly, you know, ropes down the basket of goodies she has for Jack when she's escaping Dr. Finkelstein's almost like Rapunzel-level lair that he has her trapped in. And she slowly places this on the ground, and then she just takes a fucking header out of the out of the goddamn building to make it to the floor. And there's so much about Sally that talks about how she's willing to hurt herself to get what she wants. You know, even early in the movie, she lets her arm be ripped off so she can escape Dr. Finkelstein. She's hurting herself by jumping out of buildings. She's hurting the the other people she lives with by giving Dr. Finkelstein that wormwort stew to go to a fucking town meeting. Like, she has no agency other when she hurts herself to escape. That idea is so fantastic to me. I don't think that's the main theme of the movie, but for that reason, Sally's, like, my favorite. Like, Sally's so good, and that's why I love Sally's song, because her song is so poignant. It's so lyrically just enthralling. I'm totally on board with it. What do you guys think? Do you guys have a, a character you latch on to? Do you guys have, like, a, you know, a, a, a maybe, if not character, a, maybe a moment or anything like that? I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to loosen... Uh, not loose. I'm trying to lube this up for you guys, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pulling some teeth of this 70-minute movie. <laughs> I guess, right. so, if I have to pick a favorite character, it would probably also be Sally. Uh, I don't I don't want to... to I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say that because I don't like to just, like, jump on the bandwagon. Sure. Uh, but, realistically, I think Sally's probably the most, like, fleshed-out character, which makes me more drawn to her as opposed to like any of the other like background characters that we see that are not really doing a whole lot other than just supporting the the movement would you Uh, say that she's the most uh, kind of maybe twofold she's she's the character that has the most agency in terms of reacting to the story because i don't want to say that jack doesn't have agency jack clearly has a goal and is following it but Sally's the one that's actually doing things post hoc. Like, it seems like every other character in the movie is reactionary to a fault. Sally's the only one who seems to be reacting to things with a level head. And that get, we get the great payoff at the end where Sandy Claus says, if you're going to do anything, listen to this bitch. She's the smartest one in this fucking nightmare town. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, definitely she has the most agency. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, to be fair, like you said, Jack has the motives, and he he really is driving things forward. But aside from Jack, she's really the only one making any decisions. Yes, yeah. Jack is wildly misguided, and I think that's part of the theme of this movie. But Zach, what are you going to say? Do you have a favorite character? What's uh, what what character? Maybe to frame this in a in a a sense that you would appreciate better, Zach. Which character would you have a Lego minifig of? <laughs> I am hurt by that, Rob. Uh-oh. I am Uh-oh. hurt by that. Oh, no. <laughs> what you should be saying is what sort of Halloween decoration would I want oh, of yes, these characters? Yes, Okay, okay. Uh, other than the Pumpkin King, which we've discussed already, which character would you have a Lego minifig slash Halloween decoration of? <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, I kind of, like, like, obviously the Pumpkin King is my favorite, like, character, but that's kind of a non-entity. Like, that's more of an aesthetic design yeah, more yeah. than a character. Ah, I like the mayor. He's fun. I love the fact he's, like, two-faced. That's oh, a cute yes. Design. Voiced by the great Glenn Shaddix, who Tim Burton is bringing over from, uh, he's Otho in Beetlejuice, the one who wants to monetize the, the ghosts. Absolutely. Oh, after that, like, oh god, like there's so many in the background, little like, like patrons of Halloween Town that I like so much. 
Um, like the kid with the sewn eyes, I like him. Yeah. Um, the vampires. Uh, but I guess if I had to pick one, it would be like the trio of the musicians. I just like them. Yes, yes, the street band, as they're called in the uh, the the wiki of of Nightmare Before Christmas. Speaking of which, one of the street band, I think, what it's an accordion, violin, and upright bass, something like that, maybe. Maybe there's one woodwind if I'm not if I'm not remembering correctly. But there is one character with an upright bass, and the sound hole, which is what it's actually called for this instrument, has a little person's face inside of it that is modeled after Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, they are the ones that provide the music for Sally's song. Which I don't know. I don't know if you guys are feeling. I'm feeling I should sing that song again. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. With that being said, we have our favorite characters, we have our favorite songs, that type of thing. As Ben knows when we set the stage for our Henry Selleck series on the Patreon, as we've already set the stage months earlier with my diatribe that I had about uh, Monkey Bone, I think there's a great thing about Henry Selleck movies. They all have a theme. They're all trying to tell you something that is more than surface level. And I think before I get into my whole slew and rant about what I think that theme is, I know, Ben, I've told you a little bit about it. Zach, this this is one of the things that we we always say, you know, you like to get into the philosophical more than I do. I'm going to get into it a lot in this episode. Did you take anything from seeing this movie for this recording? Did you get a grander theme, or were you just kind of along for that uh, atmospheric uh, visual ride like we talked about earlier? Um, Definitely more the latter. Okay. Uh, as, as for a deeper meaning of this, I know Burton, like, uh, based this off of like a, 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 oh God, a short story that he had penned years earlier. Oh, oh, don't even don't even go that far. It's not a short story. It's a poem. It's a two and oh, a half know. page poem that this is based off of. Okay, uh, no, then I do not know the uh, deeper philosophical meaning. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad you bring that up because, of course, as much as I I love this movie, I hate the fact that when I talk to people about it, they go, "Oh yeah, the Tim Burton movie," and I almost throw a shit fit when I described to them that this is not a Tim Burton movie. And I'm very happy to actually say this. Something I dug up for this research was an interview with Henry Selick where he says the following, quote, It's as though Burton laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it. Later on in the interview, he goes to say, Tim Burton was, quote, Not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up maybe five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total. Here's the thing. Tim Burton might have had the inspiration for not only the poem, which was the inspiration for the story, but also the inspiration of the artistic design. Because, of course, Tim Burton loves just drawing circles around people's eyes. That seems to be the only thing he can do. I don't know. Maybe if we go to Tim Burton more later, Zach, I'll get to complain about him more. But honestly, from everything I can find... The people who developed this movie after it was, you know, the poem was adapted into a, a screenplay by Carolyn Thompson, the people who developed this movie were really Henry Selick and Danny Elfman. They were the two people that actually pushed this movie forward in terms of narrative design, in terms of story beats, in terms of fleshing it out into something that's only 70 minutes long. So I don't feel bad saying that this is not a Henry Selleck movie. You might hear people online say, oh, it's not really Henry Selleck, Tim Burton had these ideas, blah, blah, blah. I think this is just as much a Henry Selleck film in terms of the themes, the atmosphere, the motifs, as everything else. And Ben... 
I know something we've talked about in our animation on the Patreon, something that actually blew me out of the water when I, when I actually watched a little interview with some of the animators on this film. This movie's primarily animated in twos. They didn't even go to ones for a lot of this. I think this movie looks great for being animated on twos. This movie looks fluid as hell as far as I'm concerned. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think in terms of uh, the kind of jumpiness of movement that I've described as being a turnoff for me, there was not a ton of that in this movie. That was your kind of your kind of big thing when we talked on the Henry Selick Patreon episode. You were like, I, I, I've never really been able to get into stop motion. And I think that, you know, maybe it's because the stop motion you've seen is animated on threes or fours. They actually took the level to animate this on twos. And I think there's a few sequences of ones, the end sequence but with Jack and Oogie Boogie, I think has to be on ones or it can't look that good. But... I was shocked to see that they actually put that much time into this movie, animating it on twos. Speaking of which, I also have to mention, this is the first animated film ever, not just stop motion, animated period, to be nominated for Best Visual Effects at the Oscars. I want to give you a hint, Zach. Do you know what it lost to? It's a movie that includes things I think are really stupid, but except in chicken nugget form. Oh, God, stupid dinosaurs. Jurassic Park beat this out for best visual effects, and I think that is a fucking atrocity because the only reason the effects of Jurassic Park work is because they're used so sparingly. Fuck that as a reason to win a category. Um, Anyway... Can we get into the themes of this movie? Can I, I know I'm throwing a lot at you guys. I don't want to. I don't want to jump over anything that you had to say or anything. I'm sure we'll get the scenes and stuff later. But can I please now go on my monkey bone esque diatribe of what I think this movie is about? Do I do I have permission? <laughs> I'm excited. Or is one or is one of you going to sing Sally's song? I would love to hear your guys' rendition of Sally's song. <laughs> Not in your life, bro. Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, well. The reason I've grown to love this movie so much in the last few years, not in the last few years, maybe the last seven or eight years, you know, this is one of the first movies I had to get on my hard drive when I started collecting files on my undergrad. And this is one of the first movies that I watched after I found it. I think that this movie gets at something that is a fundamental lesson for anybody to learn who is going into studying a certain field, a certain topic, a certain field of expertise. I'm going to use that word field a lot, and that's what I mean. I mean the field of expertise that you jump into. The movie starts with Jack being unfulfilled by constantly repeating the same old Halloween Town celebrations. He's always the centerpiece. He's always the celebrity, and he's treated as such. But the residents of Halloween Town don't seem to care about him They just care about his creative output. That's the whole opening scene of the movie. That after we get, you know, this is Halloween, Zack slinks away and he goes to Moonlight Hill and he sings the song, Jack's Lament, about how he is just so, you know, he feels that it's so effortless and hollow and unsatisfying. And he wants something new. And I think that's something that everybody can relate to. If you focus so much in one field, you start to feel, you know, unsatisfied by it. You want to do something different with it. And that desire to do something different with your field, to expand on it, you might be jumping the gun. You might be saying, oh man, I really want to do something new for Halloween, which is what Jack's saying. I might want to do something new for the field I've found myself in. And Jack stumbles onto something new. Christmas. It's so different. It's so polaristically different from what Halloween is and what the essence of Halloween Town is that Jack becomes enamored by it. And he thinks it's something he can break down and learn and can study. 
but he doesn't realize that this other field, this holiday in the movie, they're not something that you can fundamentally understand. It's a feeling. He does not get in that first 20, 25 minutes of the movie that the essence of Christmas is the same essence of Halloween, that it's more of a feeling, a faith, than it is something you can actually break down and study. But Jack doesn't care. Jack wants to dive into Christmas. He wants to understand Christmas. We get the wonderfully fantastic montage of Jack doing science experiments on Christmas. Jack has a chalkboard where he writes something like, Ben, I had to write this down because I knew you and I were going to love it. Three pi squared times 12 equals Santa hat. (laughs) Jack is literally trying to fundamentally break down the concept of what Christmas is. And a little fun fact, if Ben did not pick up on this, three pi squared times 12 comes out to about, if you count, if you take the number and count the days, it comes out to December 21st, which is not December 25th. They actually put a little care into that. I thought you'd approve of that, Ben. But I think Ben and I can agree the moment where Jack has on his chalkboard something like, you know, chestnuts divided by open fire times square root of December 25th. It just loses all nonsense right there. <laughs> but but Jack wants to understand this this new idea. And we reach the point in the movie where he knows he can't understand it. No matter how much studying and time he's put into this, he can't wrap his brain around faith, this feeling of a holiday. And his answer is to say, well, what does it matter? If I don't fully understand it, I can still recreate it. He even goes on in that song, Jack's Obsession, to say, it should be mine. Why should it be everybody's? It should be mine. I can improve on this. He has the thought to expand someone else's field of expertise by injecting his knowledge of his own field of expertise. He thinks he can improve Christmas by using his grand mastery of Halloween. And that's where the movie makes the fulcrum point. Because the rest of the movie, as of course Jack goes on to run Christmas by kidnapping Sandy Claus, by barrowing through the fog juice that Sally puts in the, uh, the Halloween town, you know, fountain, he goes on to run Christmas. And it is horrible. He's made a mess of everything. He has taken too much of his expertise and covered it up with the essence of Christmas. And we get the scene, which is the song called Poor Jack, after he's been blown to smithereens, after he's been shot down by the military, that he realizes, man, I tried something, and it failed horrendously. I was so misguided. But... It's not too late to save the day. I haven't taken things beyond the point of no return. If anything, one of the greatest moments of this movie is that Jack in that cemetery realizes, I'm so glad I did this. I'm so glad I stepped into another field of expertise and tried to learn about it because now I have better ideas about Halloween. The climax of this movie is Jack coming to terms with the fact that he should better his art form by taking the pieces of other art forms he understands and injecting them into his own. He should not overhaul somebody else's art form by using what he knows is best for his. And I just want to relate this all down to one tiny example that I think Ben will really appreciate, and I think our audience and Zach and everybody will understand. Talk about mathematics and art. 
mathematics is improved by using art, which Ben and I know. We've seen Uspensky draw that stupid little picture of the diagonal argument many times, and that improves our understanding of mathematics. But the other way around does not work. Art is not improved if it's all mathematics. If art is all mathematics, we don't get the Picassos, the Cubism, the, the Hoppers, the, the Abstractism, anything like that. This is exactly what this moving, movie is getting at. Nightmare Before Christmas is telling the audience to improve the art form that you feel unfulfilled by. You can expand it by branching out into other fields but not co-opting those other fields. And I find that to be one of the most poignant themes of a movie, not only from the early 90s, but from all time. I want to throw it over to Ben with that last example that I gave. And I know this is something I've told Ben before. I've expressed to him my feeling about how this movie is about creating excellence in a field, but I've never given him this detailed explanation. Your thoughts immediately while we hear Zach reload his gun and shoot himself. <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, I definitely got the vibe of somebody who's sick with what they're doing and needs a change of pace, uh, and they, they need to, to branch out and do something different. The thing Crazy that, stale. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> the the thing that the thing that I didn't pick up on as much, and, and I and I think that maybe you're onto something with it, is th- is that in his failing of of changing subjects, so to speak, changing art forms, that he realizes he can make his own better by taking uh, the things from his failed experience. That adds a level to it that I didn't quite pick up on. Okay. Uh, I I do I mean your your example with with art and expense yeah I I do like it and to add on to it further there is a particular branch of art that does benefit greatly from mathematics and uh, I think everybody has seen those fractal pictures sure uh, yeah they're they're incredibly beautiful uh, and there are a bunch of different things that you can do uh, by mixing art or by mixing math into art but if you were to try to over overhaul art, art entirely with mathematics yeah. you would end up with with uh, a disaster. I knew that example was going to resonate with you because when I thought of that, I was like, yeah, math is improved by art. Ben and I know we've sat in that goddamn windowless chalk dust filled room where Uspensky drew the fucking square in the circle and a line down the diagonal. And we went, oh, yes, we understand why many questions in an algebraic system cannot be answered fundamentally. <laughs> yes. But the uh, other way around, you're right. If all art had to be math. There's there's no point to that. It's almost nonsensical to think of it that way. Well, and and so I guess this actually, um, I, I'm talking about the theme. This actually gets at, at another reason that I didn't like it the first time through, um, or or that I really really didn't like it the first time through, because I I was looking at at, at his attempt to change what he was doing more uh, through the lens of my own life, where I was a professional mathematician for for six years. And then now I am not, and I am a um, mobile software engineer. And I did change what I was doing, and I, and I took that leap, and I went off and, and did the other thing, and I stepped into a world that was not mine, and I learned everything there sure. was to learn about it. And the difference, and, and so like, to, to some degree, like I, I, I see where where you're coming from, Rob. Uh, but at the same time, like he takes this idea back to his people that are all only Halloween brained. Yes. So the, the the similarity there would be like if I learned programming and then took it to all of our math friends or well friends in air quotes, and and was like, hey look like 
we should do this. Yeah, yeah. You you bring up a really good point there, and I think that's a very important part of this movie is that Jack takes his ideas of Christmas and wants to implant or supplant them onto Halloween Town. Where you right. make you make a good point of you know you were you were in X career moved on to Y career that happens all the time. I think the difference, which I think you're agreeing with, it, is that Jack brings it back to the people he knows are fundamentally believing in something else, and that's one of the most important scenes of the movie to me. Which is is the the reason for which is that before Jack comes back from Christmas Town, the implication of the movie is that the mayor and every citizen of Halloween Town is trying to find him. That they are shocked and, and, you know, at a loss because Jack is not there. And then as soon as Jack comes back, he calls the town meeting. He wants to explain these news I- new ideas to them. And they are constantly interrupting him about how this relates back to what they know. This is a thing called a present. The whole thing starts with a box. A box? Is it steel? Are there locks? Is it filled with a pox? A pox? How delightful a pox. If you please. Just a box with bright colored paper. And the whole thing's topped with a bow. A bow? But why? How ugly? What's in it? What's, What's in it? What's the point of the thing not to know? It's a bat! Will it bend? It's a rat! Will it break? Perhaps it's the head that I found in the lake. And I think there's a really important idea of creative art artistry that Jack is never seen by the residents of Halloween Town other than Sally as a person. He's seen as a creative force. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, no, definitely, and I, and I definitely uh, I can see parallels there with with different bands where it's like if a band changes their sound significantly, people people will start to give them shit like oh you you've sold out or you've done this. Yeah, or that. yeah, I think the example that I I must have ranted to you years ago, Ben, is when I started on my cybersecurity project in my you know uh, research years. All I wanted to do was create visuals because all of these industry people wanted visuals. And I would take these ideas of graphics and stuff and go back to my statistician cohorts and they would go, this is stupid. You can never prove anything from a graph. And I'm like, but that's not the point. These people don't want anything proved. They want something shown to them in the moment. And that's probably why this movie resonates so much more with me now, you know, four or five years removed from my work in cybersecurity, because I had people from the industry telling me, if we can't look at a picture and get the idea in a minute, it's useless. And I would go back to my CSU people and they'd go, if it's not a fucking 15-page paper proving something, it's useless. There's such a divide between that level of expanding a field that makes it so important to me sure and in that scenario you were being pushed on both sides to kind of not not give in to uh to change something and where it's like you know you know i kind of see it in this case is like the business people are, are christmas yeah in the and the statistics people are halloween and it's it's so like i i guess when i when i looked at this movie at first you know like the first the first inklings that got was like oh this is somebody who's dissatisfied and looking for a career change and and that's admittedly because of my own lens. But then for him to fail at that, I was like, this this movie's kind of dick. Like, why <laughs> like why why go through this whole movie of setting up like that somebody needs a change of pace to only to only have them realize in the end they need to revert back to what they what they came from. And I I didn't catch and and maybe I I still haven't caught it, but you're mentioning it, so I'm sure it's not entirely made up. That he that he took some knowledge from his experience of failure yes. and brought that back with him. That was a, a level of detail that I missed. And bef- without that, this movie is terrible. 
Like, without that, this movie is about somebody who thought they wanted something different, dares to try it, fails, and then just goes back to life as normal. Like, without yeah. that that added component. Like, yeah. this is a, uh, not a... Not at all a movie worth making in the sense... Or not at all a story worth telling in the sense that there's no growth. But if he is bringing something back, and I'll give you the benefit of the da- that on that, that... Um, that actually adds that layer of growth to it. Yeah, that, and that that's where something that came into mind when you mentioned, I think both you and Zach mentioned, how a lot of the lyrics of these songs spin their wheels, which is, I don't think that's the case. Like, I think, you know, when when, when Jack gets shot, to sm- blown to smithereens, he gets shot out of the sky by the military, and he's in the, uh, the, the cemetery, and he's singing Poor Jack, like that's Z- Jack's final song. He says, you know, why does nothing ever turn out like it should? Well, what the heck? I went and did my best. And by God, I really tasted something swell. And for a moment, why, I even touched the sky. And at least I left some stories they can tell. And right off the bat, when he's singing that, you're like, oh, man, he realizes he fucked up with Christmas. And he's still happy for going down this road. But he continues. And he says, and for the first time since I don't remember when... I felt just like my old bony self again. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, that's right, I am the Pumpkin King. And I just can't wait until next Halloween because I've got some new ideas that'll really make them scream. And that's where it all comes together for me in the movie, where he realizes that he's gone the complete wrong direction with how to enhance his field. He tried to take over somebody else's, but he should have just learned something new and used that to bolster his own. And that's the beauty of this movie to me. I, I can see that, especially, I mean, with that line, like, that's specifically the thing you're mentioning, so that's definitely the, what they're going for, is that he, he went and learned something new, and, and that's, uh, I mean, that's something that, that applies, I, I think, in every aspect of life, yeah. is that if, like, I, I can't, I can't describe to you the number of times that I went for a walk and saw something that it, that made me think of something that made a good argument for a mathematics proof. Sure. And it's like, you, you, you could never, like, you know, you, you can't tell somebody this who's not in, ingrained or engrossed in the field. Like, oh, yeah, I looked at that tree and it made me think of the of this proof. And they'll be like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? But it's like, <laughs> whenever, you know, maybe if you show it to a mathematician, you could you can kind of lay out the tree pattern that you saw and, yeah. and how yeah. that got, how you got there. Um, and, and so, yeah, definitely, like, going out and getting something from another field or, or just from anything else, like, that's a great idea. Uh, I'm not real familiar with people who have tried to completely overhaul uh, a different field in, in that way. And that's, sure. that's maybe where a little bit of the disconnect uh, for me came from. Okay, okay. But but you, uh, I think you are in, in a level of understanding that, you know, when Jack says, man, I really fucked Christmas up. But he has that quick line where he's like, I'm glad I did it because I got to do something I never got to do before. It, it's the sense of, you know, we're, we're ta- the movie puts it in terms of holidays, which is probably a grander scale. But I think of this as something where it's like, you know, maybe you, me, Ben, Zach, anybody of our audience, they jump out to something else for maybe like a week or two. They, they jive with somebody new. They might not love it, but it's like, man, at least I got that experience. There's that level of, man, I'm so glad I tried something new that is so poignant to me. Because you don't want to 
It would be different if Zach, if if Zach, if Jack just lived in Halloween Town the whole time. The fact that he actually went into the real world and tried Christmas, I think that adds to his growth for me because he actually went out there and tried to do it. Sure, and and that that growth from doing something and like even stepping out and and going beyond your comfort zone and and realizing, no, I stepped in the wrong direction. My comfort zone yeah. was a better fit for me than this. Like that—that that is valuable in the grand scheme of things. While the way I framed it with regards to career changes, like that—that's kind of a more upsetting take on it. Sure. Even that idea of like doing something new that I don't like has helped me help me feel like and understand myself again. Um, whereas if you get caught in the monotony of what you're doing every day, um, you can definitely lose who you are. Absolutely, absolutely. Just, just a routine. Yeah. And yeah. The, that yeah. that unfulfilledness, that unsatisfaction, uh, feeling, that you know what you're good at almost becomes effortless, effortless, and worthless type of thing. Oh yeah, and that that's like 100 percent something I've experienced with math and and with programming. It's like I, I'm good enough at this that the challenges here. Well, for one, it's like at some point the challenge was something that was enough, but then it was like, okay, but why am I doing the challenge? And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for me, it was like, well, the the end result was that I I decided to leave the field I was in. Uh, but I could definitely see somebody taking that step out and be like, oh, that's why I did that thing. Like, yeah. That was, it was yeah. so meaningful in a way that this thing, this other thing, couldn't be. Absolutely. And Ben Ben knows this about me. I mean, you know, Ben, just thinking about our, our history in the past is that I've, I've taken this movie to heart for so many years. I've never tried to just conquer a new field. You know, when I got really into drawing, doodling, some people might call it, I said, well, what do I want to draw? Well, I love repetition of chorus and songs. I'm going to draw 18 square feet of the same thing over and over. Uh, you know, I, when I, when I play, started to play music, I said, well, I, I really want to know more about music, but I don't really know how to do it. So I listen to a lot of foreign songs and type of thing. And I, I don't want to. I don't want to sing in French. I want to kind of get the sense of well, how were these other people singing? Be able to help my own vocals. This this movie and this message I've laid out has really helped me in my whole history by saying, well, no, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I need to improve the square wheel with pegs in it that I've created for my own. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and and I, I think Rob also knows that. I'm I'm different than that. Any any task I take on, I intend to be better at it than is is reasonable to hold myself. Well, back well, okay, okay, hold on. I know I know exactly what you mean. I'm not disagreeing with you, Ben. But let let's take another example from you and I. We started to make bread. We started to make pizza. We didn't say let's revolutionize the pizza. Let's That's take true. the next natural step and put a layer of crust in our crust. <laughs> I think we were also following something similar to this. I don't know if Zach's aware of this. Zach, do you did you know that Ben and I, when we lived near each other, we made we actually made we did this. This was not like just an idea. We fundamentally did this. It's a pizza. And when you get to the crust of the pizza, you have a layer of sauce and cheese with another layer of crust inside of it. Does that make sense, Zach? Did I I mean did I explain that correctly? That it's it's crust in crust in pizza? It's like stuffed crust, but instead of cheese. Yeah, imagine if the crust of your pizza was a stromboli with more bread inside of it, Zach. Zach is like, okay, I think we might have just heard Zach actually pull the trigger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the the breads and bread 
pizza apocalypse. Bread's in bread's peak of pizza apocalypse. Pizza, something like that. The earthquake was in there somehow too. I don't, I don't remember. Bread's in um, bread's pizza apocalypse. Breadquake was that what it was? Did we put bread that many times? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. I know that we included multiple natural disasters in the name as well. Uh, I think I'm going to say because uh, I, I want to throw it to Zach because I want to get his thoughts on this on this whole thing I've put forward. And of course, you know, I've been able to relate it to Ben in all these ways. Uh, one, Zach, what do you think about crust in your crust? And two, what do you think about what I put forward in this movie? <laughs> Well, before before we hop over to that, what I was saying is like when so you know Rob mentioned his foray into art. He did this doodling and he and he did make a massive art piece that was repetition of various uh, images. Uh, my foray into art was I spent hours learning character art and learning yes. how to paint character art, and we can include a few of those pictures in the Reddit as well. But but my my attempt was to step into their world and see their world for what it was, not to bring it back to my own thing, I guess. And I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, I, I, I think I, I know what you mean. I, I guess we should say, I mean, Zach, Zach, <laughs> this is what you get after the fort year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Zach, now you can talk. No, he's dead. I think he's dead. I think he's legitimately oh. dead. This might be it. No. No, no, no. Okay. He's like, no, I just, I just, plugged, I just plugged in the IV. I'm good to go for another three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but please, Zach, all jokes aside, what do you what do you have to say to all this? There's a lot to unpack. Uh, there's a certain level of just like, oh, God, intrinsic analysis of this film. I never once again like like looked at it. I've never really had any sort of level of appreciation that is on Rob's level. For this film, okay. as you know, I'm not as I, I fall into the egregious trap as the public. Whereas this is just uh, the October movie. It also comes down to just like I, I, I'm kind of with the audience on this one, where I'm just kind of soaking this all in because I really <laughs> am just. I, I've never thought about it this way, and I really don't have a dog in it in this fight when it comes to analyzing that this film on the level okay, that well, Ross presented. Well, to, to be fair, Zach, you should have gotten ready for this after a Monkey Bone episode where I did a, a ninety minute diatribe on the on the Church of the Sub Genius. Right? It's not. I, it's, I can't. You can't say I'm blindsiding you. <laughs> well, no, but at the same time, though, it's just kind of I. There's, I, I, you know my opinions on that, Rob. I yes okay well even though this has been a new topic for you with the argument I've laid out and Ben and I just described and stuff like that do you have any thoughts you know maybe a, a, just a brief kind of first take on a you know do, do now maybe in a post hoc you know retrospective do you think this movie is in line with what we're getting at the um you know the artistic fields and how to better your own creation type of thing um uh, sure I guess that's the core of the message uh it's 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 clearly there. But I, again, that's the weird thing about like just going through the history of this film is that like, oh god, do we know what the Tim Burton short story? Or I'm sorry, the poem was about. Oh yeah, it is. It is. Um, it is just Halloween character finds portal to Christmas land and loves Christmas land. That's it. That's it. That's it. There's uh, no like corro- uh, co- corroboration of Jack running Christmas. It's just. It's just this idea of Halloween creature discovers what Christmas is. There's no anti-aircraft like, like no guns no. There's this. no there's no 
army in this movie. There's no, what I would say is the masterstroke of this movie in that the first two-thirds take place entirely in fantasy holiday land, and then the last third takes place entirely in reality, which I love. None of that. <laughs> um, uh, considering that all of Henry Selleck's works have some sort of like moral core to them. Yep. Yep. Or at least some sort of just lesson you're supposed to learn. Uh, yeah, I would imagine he baked that into the into the film. He, I don't I, think he I just think, stumbled into that. I think that's what Henry Selleck does. And you know, we we of course we've been talking about how as much as the the internet wants to think Tim Burton was breathing down Henry Selleck's neck while they made this movie, that's not the case. I think this message and stuff shines through in what we're going to discuss next week, James and Giant Peach. I but you know. Just to tie it back to what we were saying in the beginning, I do think that a lot of this message that I've put forward, which I'm really glad you guys, you know, have listened to and 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 been attracted to, it really does get lost just by what we were saying before of the marketing of the the lasting legacy of this movie, which is so upsetting. So, so something else uh, regarding this this theme, like this, the part of this that's kind of been bothering me is is him bringing this back to the Halloween Town where everybody's trying to make it Halloween. There's something to be said there for, for the full-heartedness or the, or the asinine uh, idea of, like, thinking you can take something that you don't understand and, and I don't know, like, painting yourself over it in some way. Great or it's point. Like every, Great point. Every time I've tried to step into another field, like, I have taken what I would say is, like, the white belt's approach. Like, whenever you go into a martial arts class, like... You, it doesn't matter if you've studied that martial art before. If you've never studied under that instructor, you're a white belt. Like you walk in, and you you know nothing, and you assume nothing. Well, well, I think the just based on that analogy, I think it's almost going the opposite way. Is that Jack is returning to Halloween Town to improve Halloween for his residents? Where I think you're saying something like, "What if Jack tried to be Sandy Claus in Christmas Town?" Well, and so it would it would be more like if he really wanted to appreciate Christmas, that he would walk in and offer to be an elf. Like uh, he wouldn't even, like, he would start at the okay. ground. Yeah, no, that that's the thing. You're absolutely right. That's a great point. If somebody wanted, if somebody was inundated to a new field and wanted to learn that field appropriately, you're absolutely right. Jack should have said, get me in on elf scale, you know, that type of thing. But he yeah, does the he does the opposite where he says, "Oh, I have a base level superficial knowledge of this new holiday. How can I make that our holiday?" And I think once again it comes back to um, Jack's obsession, the song when we get the um, the experimental montage and that type of stuff, where he's saying like. I've read all these Christmas uh, – he says something uh, – I've read these Christmas books so many times. I know the stories. I know the rhymes. Why doesn't it make sense to me? Like he's trying to know it on a level other than being steeped in it. He's trying to know it independently. And I think, Ben, you, you know what I mean when he's – I'm saying he's reading the textbook. He's not living the language. Sure. And, and to some degree it's – it's I, I use the word foolhardy. It's, it's like arrogance. Like it's it's Yo, a, yeah, a level yeah. of arrogance to think that you can walk into another field yep. and just pick it up in that way. You not, you, not you hit the nail on the head. The best example, one of the one of my favorite moments in this movie, showing off Jack's arrogance, is in that experimentation scene. He folds up a piece of paper, paper. He cuts it like you're going to make a snowflake, and when he unravels it, it's a spider. Jack literally has the inability to create a paper snowflake. It's going to come out as Halloween. That's his arrogance. Hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't think of that scene as that way, but I, I see. I kind of see where you're coming from. Uh, I, I could also see that as being like a, 
no matter what you do, part of who you are is going to end up in your work. Yes. Um, which, so that's, that's also, that's uh, another you know, great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Are, are being communicated there. I, I know what you're saying. It's really, it's, it's really deep. And I'm so glad we get to talk about it this way, because I think what we were saying in the beginning, you know, you think about this movie, 70 minutes, you're like, yeah, you know, fun songs and goofy nonsense, that type of thing. And then, but no, there, I think there's actually a lot of stuff going for this movie. There's a lot of themes and ideas presented forward that we've touched on. I, I don't want to, you know, cut you, Ben or Zach off from any thoughts on these themes, but as much as I love this movie, I have one really big problem with it. I have, like, a major problem with this movie. Oogie Boogie! What the fuck is Oogie Boogie? He's an Oogie Boogie. He's not mentioned until the 33-minute mark. He doesn't have an appearance until the 46-minute mark. And I don't think he's fleshed out appropriately. I have some, I have some takes on Oogie Boogie. But, as Zach has said, and I think Ben has been talking about as well... Oogie Boogie is one of, like, the mainstay pop culture figures from this film. Like, you know, whether I joked about a pencil case or whether we joked about his iconography. Uh, what do you guys think about Oogie Boogie? I mean, as just, just in this movie, I don't even want to say as a villain. He's clearly portrayed as the villain for some reason I really am fucking bothered by. But, but before I get into my diatribe about why I dislike Oogie Boogie, what did you guys think about this, this kind of just throwdown of a villain in the last literally 15 20 minutes of the movie <laughs> uh one of the other notes i wrote down is holy shit oogie boogie is introduced very late in this movie so late so fucking yeah. late so i i also noticed this and that and given that i have next to no context this, that's definitely an indicator of how prevalent he is in the marketing and how not prevalent he is in the it, yeah, this is the one where I'm, like, shocked by the, the disparity between how much he's in this movie, how little he's in this movie, I should say, and how much, one, he's marketed, and two, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, one of the most popular songs for people to lip-sync on TikTok is Oogie Boogie's song, and it really upsets me. <laughs> I did hear something that I have no idea if it's true or not, but I heard that apparently when they're animating the film, that his character was very, very like precarious, and that like it was a nightmare to try to position it because it would break so easily. Yes, yes. I, well, one, you're right. the The actual physical construction of Oogie Boogie as a character was really difficult, from what I've read. Which I love this movie even more for being as fluid as it comes off in that last you know, Oogie Boogie versus Jack showdown, which is separate from what I'm talking about now. I want to talk about that later. But Oogie Boogie was a very, very tenuous structure as a, you know, puppet. I I also kind of hate that the fact that his song, I just want to hit this again, you can see so many fucking, like, high school girls singing Oogie Boogie's song on TikTok. Like the, you're joking, you're joking, I can't believe my eyes. You're joking me, you gotta be, this can't be the right guy. For some reason, this has been co-opted by fucking emo little girl TikTok, which I am, I, I mean, I'm not super against because I like that it's getting out there, but I'm kind of against because TikTok exists. I mean, thoughts on that, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Ben, have we ever talked about TikTok before? <laughs> 
No, I don't think we've talked about TikTok directly, but uh, with regards to it being emo girls, I mean, it was emo girls that I knew that liked this movie. Ah, sure, so, sure. I guess so, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, just just in terms of, without getting into the, the modern age, you know, co-opting of, of Nightmare for Christmas, this is my problem, my big problem with the movie. It's, it's, it's my, it is literally my main issue. Oogie Boogie. He appears so late in the movie. We have nothing to establish exactly what he is. A lot of this movie comes across hollow because we don't know the history between Jack and Oogie Boogie. We don't know why the mayor is so afraid of Oogie Boogie. We have no concept of why this Halloween town, this existence, this society that is literally based on taking horror as a positive has someone they've put to the outskirts. We have no idea what Oogie Boogie is or why he is. And I I think, kind of, Zach, you might be rolling your eyes and saying Rob wants context on something. But man, I think for as much as I love that last 10-minute showdown between Jack and Oogie Boogie, and don't get me fucking wrong, when Oogie Boogie turns that, like, that, like, lever over, and Jack pops up and he goes, Hello, Oogie. Like, I get goosebumps. I love that moment so much. What the... Hello, Oogie. Jack! But it would be even better if we understood why the two of them would ever want to fight with each other. Oogie Boogie is so poorly fleshed out, it's a huge, undeniable detriment to this movie. I don't know, Rob. Like, part of me wonders, like, so, like, again, from what my reading and understanding of this movie is, is that apparently there was some point in Nightmare Before Christmas lore, I have no idea if this is, like, fan nonsense that's just kind of been grafted onto, like, the film. But, like, apparently wasn't that, like, Oogie Boogie was supposed to be, like, like, oh, God, the Pumpkin King or just, like, like the, pri- the prime like scary person yeah, of Halloween yeah. and Jack stole that Jack quote stole it from him. And that's why there's like this rivalry. I think, I think you are misconstruing some ideas. Sorry to say that, Zach, okay. but I have to say it. Uh, the original idea for this story, when Tim Burton worked with Caroline Thompson on making the screenplay before it got worked on a lot by Denny Elfman and Henry Selleck with the, to become the final product that we know, Oogie Boogie was supposed to have been Dr. Finkelstein in disguise. And Oogie Boogie was going to reveal himself to be the mad sign to this movie. And when Jack was going to launch off into the real world to run Christmas, it was going to be revealed that Oogie Boogie was Dr. Finkelstein. And now that Jack was gone, he was going to take over Halloween Town. That was the original twist in the screenplay. Which makes no fucking sense to me. Does it flesh out Oogie Boogie more as a villain? Yes. But do I like that better than what we've got? Absolutely fucking not. I think that makes no sense as a narrative. And I'm glad they cut it. You don't know, like the ambiguity of like what the film has where like there is this level of just like again, I don't know if it's rivalry or like contention between the two characters. You don't like that there's that level well, of just mystery to it. I'm I'm glad you bring that up because the one thing that I've latched on to all these through all these years of of what what is what the fuck is Oogie Boogie other than villain in air quotes, you know? I think there's something very meaningful to the fact that he rolls dice to make his decisions. I I have started to think of him in the last few years as something of 
it's interest to me that he's a gambler and that he might almost be the embodiment of negative consequences from gambling. Because Jack, as we've said in the message of this movie, going into the field of Christmas, of using his expertise to do something new, he's taking a risk. And that's how I think even Sally describes it at a certain point. She says something like, Jack, why are you taking this risk? Why don't you just do what you've always been known to do? And Jack goes into one of the most, like, trans-positive statements ever. If, if you guys remember, he says, you know, Sally says to Jack while he's in the suit, why are you doing this? This is a risk you're taking. You look so different. And Jack goes, I know! I feel better in this suit. You don't look like yourself, Jack. Not at all. Isn't that wonderful? It couldn't be more wonderful. But you're the Pumpkin King. Not anymore. And I feel so much better now. Jack, I know you think something's missing, but... Ow. Sorry. Like, there, there's so much detail there. But I think I've taken Oogie Boogie to be villain, in air quotes, also, he is the negative consequence of risk. Jack is rolling the dice on being in this new field. Oogie Boogie is the negative consequence of making the day lost. Because like I said, in the song Poor Jack, when he's in the cemetery, he realizes that he fucked up Christmas, he's glad he took a foray into another field, and there's still time to save the day. Oogie Boogie is the facet of that realization, have I fucked up so bad that I can't save the day? Is Christmas actually ruined? That's the only thing I've been able to latch onto it with. Is that fully fleshed out? No. Oogie Boogie comes in way too late to make this at all meaningful, I think. And that's my big problem with the movie. Oogie Boogie is just a, a, a straw strand of what I'm trying to connect the rest of this movie to. You know what I mean? Well, not only that, he's also incredibly easy to defeat. The seam, yeah, the seam that gets caught on his own device, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it seems like at any point in time, anybody could have cut the fabric of his costume, and the bugs inside of it would have spilled out. And he, like, he is not hardy in, in the slightest. And that's exactly what I'm saying, is I wish we had more backstory. I wish there was more gravitas given to the fact that Jack pulls that seam and goes, it is so shameful for you you to treat my friends this way. I wish we had any, any context for why Jack and Oogie Boogie hate each other. Because in that moment I mentioned, when Oogie thinks he's putting Sally and Santy, Sandy Claus into the, the gross pit of molten lava, whatever the hell you want to call it, and he realizes Jack is there, Jack's like, hello, Oogie, and Oogie's scared. I want any knowledge of that, you know? I want to give me... Give me any little bit of backstory about why they have a rivalry as the kings of Halloween Town or something. Yeah, I well also I think the ambiguity works. Oh, Jesus Christ, Zach! Jesus Christ! <laughs> I could probably point if Less if, if I if when, when I'm editing this episode, I might be able to point back to like five moments where we're switched on this, where I'm like, I like the ambiguity, and you go, go fuck yourself, Rob. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it's different because it's supposed to be like almost like like oh god. Like a glorified short story. I think this is not meant to be like a fully like fleshed out narrative in a conventional sense. This is be a glorified glorified short story. I think it works to that. Well, well, and and that's one of the problems I had with it is that it feels very much like a short story, and it they stretched it out longer than you. It's you guys aren't wrong, but where it's a short story when hit it when it hit hits the beats it needs to, it works fantastically. 
but I'm with you. That's my big problem is that this villain, this this climax of the movie is so undercooked. It upsets me. I want that. I want to know more about Oogie Boogie. I mean, the the thing that I have to say when, you know, Oogie Boogie just activates his entire casino of death at the end of the movie and Jack is jumping around, you know, spinning knives and playing cards and he's on the roulette machines. Dude, that is some of the most visually stimulating stuff I've ever seen in stop motion. I just wish I knew why it was happening. <laughs> you do make a good point. Like, There's a lot of gambling uh, symbolism. Yeah, yeah. Oogie Boogie's whole lair is a casino, and they they play on that hard in Kingdom Hearts that he's rolling dice, throwing dice at you, that type of stuff. But I, I just want to know why he's the embodiment of risk. I, I, we don't, we never get that set up. I, Zach mentioned the video games earlier, which I've never played. I've only done the Kingdom Hearts, which just basically rehashes the movie. Oogie Boogie wants to control the Heartless. You know, that's very in-game canon, that type of stuff. I don't know. I, that's all I'm saying is Oogie Boogie shows up too late, is not fleshed out. That's the biggest problem I have with this film. Do 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 the three little kids? What lock was it? Lock, stock, and barrel. Lock, shock, and barrel. Lock, shock, yeah. Lock, shock, and barrel. Do they play any role to him? Like, like from what you've read, like on a deep, like a deeper philosophical level. They're they're just kind of his henchmen in the movie and in the video games, and even in Kingdom Hearts One, you fight them in the lead up to Oogie Boogie type of thing because they they're the ones that steal the heart that Doctor Finkelstein creates to control the Heartless, and Oogie Boogie wants to steal it. No, they they don't have as much as well. I mean, I like them better as characters just because they seem to be the only thing on the fringes of this society. Like, they can come and go in Halloween Town proper or Oogie's Mansion, and everybody kind of knows about them. That's a thing when I watch this movie for the 10 billionth time, and Lock, Shock, and Barrel come into play, and they're clearly following Jack's orders, maybe for Oogie Boogie's ulterior motives, you still never get the sense why they want to follow or be loyal to Oogie Boogie. It's never fleshed out. Yeah. That's a that's that's my biggest problem with the movie. It's a big problem. It's a big fucking problem because if this movie was ten minutes longer and fleshed this out, this might be my favorite movie of all time. But instead, it's probably my I don't know twenty fifth favorite movie of all time. <laughs> oh god. Oh god. Yeah. So I've I've given my details. I I know if if Ben and Zach have anything to say on my thesis of this movie, they can throw it over to me. But I really want to throw it to you guys. What do you think? Are there any scenes you wanted to highlight? Any characters we didn't talk about? Anything like that? Um, I know I know. Ben is, like you said, you've gotten a little more, your heart is warmed a little more to this movie. Zach likes the background characters more than anything. Was there anything else we need to talk about with uh, uh, with design or anything like that? I, I kind of want to reiterate, you, you mentioned it a little bit uh, with Sally giving out parts of herself and letting her arm come off, etc. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting that, that her body parts are so detachable and that she can sew them back on at will. Uh, but the scene, which you did mention earlier, I just want to mention that I really also liked it, where she takes a header out of that tower. That is the funniest shit I think oh, I've ever seen. Oh, oh, I almost want to cry when that scene happens, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just, I don't know. I, I definitely I definitely got comedy vibes from it. Because it's like, like you said, she's taking care of this basket, and then she just fucking drops it yeah, down and yeah. is in pieces. 
And then yeah. immediately sits up and starts fixing yourself. So like, that, that's the key. There's no permanent damage. Exactly. So that you, you just hit the nail on the head. That's the key. Is that seeing this, seeing that scene out of context? You know, without everything we discussed, which is probably impossible now. You just watch Sally fall face first into the camera. Cut to her on the ground. Her limbs are detached. Her her leaves stuffing is out everywhere. Her eyes pop open, and she just picks herself up, pulls out a pin or uh, a needle, and starts threading herself back together. This is the way I take that scene, Ben. And you're right. In that context, it's kind of probably funny because the band is right there next to her, ready to just watch her do this, you know? But here's the thing. I don't think this is the first time she's ever done this. I think she's doing this with the accepted knowledge that she can stitch herself back together. But I think there's a level of sadness that we as the audience should realize... How long can she keep doing this and keep stitching herself back together? Like, won't those threads break one day? Won't those limbs become so loose that she, if not be able to reattach her arm, she has to lose length in her arm? Isn't the movie saying something about she's damaged herself so much and become so accepting of it that she's not realizing that this might not be the case for the rest of her time? Uh, I was kind of getting more, like, independent vibes of... I can fall apart, but I can also put myself back together. Yeah, but you're, you're right, independent in the moment. But Ben, I think you can agree, if she's done this a thousand times, that wear and tear has to start to take place. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. And that's true for, I think that's true for people uh, as well. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the vibe that it had happened a ton. I definitely got okay. the vibe that it happened a few times. Because... The uh, fecal scene guy does mention her poisoning him and escaping and etc. So sure. obviously she's she's done different things yeah. to get yeah. out. Uh, so I wasn't necessarily under the impression that she had taken this particular route many times, but I, I could see where you're coming from. Yeah, but and that's that's how I take Sally's song is not only is she lamenting about the fact that you know. Jack is so focused on his goals that he's not seeing, well, one, what's the better for him? What's the better for Halloween Town? What's the better for me, who is romantically interested in him? Sally is saying, like, I'm not going to be around for this long. I wish I could join in the troop and just appreciate Zack for what he is, but I see him as a different level. Sally's the only one that sees Jack as a person. Like I said earlier... Everybody else in Halloween Town, the mayor included, sees Jack as a performer. They don't care if he works himself to the bone. They just want to see that Halloween celebration every year. Sally's the only one that actually cares about him. And in Sally's song, she's starting to realize, I'm not going to be around forever. Whether it be because she's losing limbs or she's going to be trapped by Finkelstein. But she's also saying Jack's not going to be around forever because he's so actively trying to change himself. That's why I find that song so poignant. It's coming at it from both ways. It's the artistic creation side of Jack that I've been talking about. And it's the sad mortality perspective of Sally that I get such a heavy hand of. Specifically in that scene when she, you know, is jumping out of the window. She's hurting herself. She... She literally has to hurt herself. She has to cut off one of her legs to attempt to trick Oogie Boogie at the end of the movie. And that fails. She's trying something, but she's still hurting herself to do it. It's that idea of how much do we take from ourselves to put forth towards the goals we're trying to accomplish. How much does Jack lose of Halloween to accomplish Christmas? How much does Sally lose of her sewing to accomplish just to give Jack a good little butterfly vapor in a bottle type of thing? 
thing. Oh, I love it. <laughs> well, and the the idea of um, I've probably mentioned this before in episodes, but the idea of sacrifice and and giving of yourself to achieve things. Like, I mean, that's that's essentially uh, mankind's ability to bargain with with time is yep, uh, our yep. ability to make sacrifices. So to have a character who's actually making sacrifices at the forefront in this way, like maybe she's sacrificing too much. But aside from her and Jack, it doesn't seem that anyone else in Halloween Town is even sacrificing anything. Yeah, like they're not. Yes. They're in stasis. They're not. They're not bargaining with the future. They've accepted that. Uh, to them, the future might as well be the present. Yeah, great point. Good old mayor. That day, only 364 more days till Halloween. That's all they care about, you know? That's all they want is that big celebration. And, and I, think it, I think it's very poignant, poignant as well is that when, you know, Sally throws herself out the window but takes the care for the um, basket down to the ledge. She goes and she gives this to Jack. But she does not stick around for Jack to thank her. There's a very noticeable scene when Jack, you know, gets the basket up to his window after he's doing all the Christmas experiments. He opens up the bottle that we saw her mix for him, and it produces vapors of a butterfly. And Zack is happy about this. A wonderful moment that Zack is, uh, not Zack, Jack. Jack is not like, oh, no, it's not a skull. It's not a pumpkin. He sees a butterfly. He sees something just intrinsically, naturally beautiful. And he looks back down and Sally's not there anymore. I think there's a lot of weight to be held by the fact that Sally is doing this to try and help Jack. And it really only comes to that last scene when they have their romantic moment together. And I think that's wonderful. Because, yes, one of my problems with Sally is that she does kind of get reduced to a love interest. But she's a love interest in the sense of support, not of, like, sexual deviancy. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, she's, um, she's the kind of anchor you want. I think, yeah. as, as a man. Uh, and this is something that, you, you know, it is, historically, it, it has been the the men who go out into the world and slay the dragons and bring back the pieces to build the villages. But it's always been uh, the women in a society that keep the village alive while the men are doing this. Yes. And that's that's um, what Sally seems to be doing for Jack in this movie. The, the, the is, exemplar of that relationship in this movie is one of the things that make me, makes me think, you know, behind every great man, there's a greater woman. Like, this is that. Sally is the greater woman. Even if she has some issues with what Zach is doing, you know, like, Zach, you don't look like yourself. I keep saying Zach and Jack because I'm looking at Zach's name on the screen. I hope everyone knows what I mean. Uh, but that that's the thing. Like, Sally is supportive. Sally is caring. Sally is is just such a, a strong character that when we get her song, it resonates so strongly that she's trying so hard for somebody that needs that support. Nobody else in Halloween Town supports Jack. He's just the celebrity. Sally's the only one that, one, well, yeah, kind of digs him as, you know, a romantic relationship, but wants to support him in that same way, and that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely the case. Um, in, in that... In that way, the Blink-182 song kind of got it right. You know, we can live like Jack and Sally. The intro it. to the Blink-182 song. Yeah, the Blink-182 <laughs> intro, yes. Um, so, how are you? And I said that. <laughs> I can't wait to see um, how much I blow out the mics when I edit this one. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that that's like a really important intri- uh, part intrinsically in our relationships. Yeah, uh, yeah. As, as humans, for, for to have somebody who... Who, well, and so that's that's a, another kind of like 
weird uh, part of these relationships is, is that these people should uh, I, ideally, you know, they would help you explore the new frontier, but they would also help keep you uh, help keep the part of you that lives at home alive. And uh, yes, grounded, absolutely. Right. Yeah, grounded. That's a good word for it. Yeah. So they, they keep you grounded, um, but they also help you explore. And, and to that degree, she so she helps him stay grounded very much. So she is kind of anti his exploration in that sense. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe. maybe Maybe she has some learning to do in terms of. Oh no, you're, you're not wrong. Of course, because she is the one who who takes the the. We'll get to it when we get to our snacks. She has a jar labeled fog juice. Uh, she puts the fog juice in the fountain to try and stop Jack from launching off for Christmas. Uh, but of course, Jack has ghost dog. Zach, we're gonna have to talk about ghost dog. And he goes off to Christmas anyway. I think that Sally is also, in some sense, a, a much more reserved version of the, the arc we've been talking about with Jack, that she is so tunnel-visioned into what she thinks is right. She not only learns a little bit, because I think it is very poignant that she goes to save Sandy Claus from Oogie Boogie and gets caught in the process. I think that's her, like, you know, I couldn't do it all on my own, and her and Jack need to team up. But I think there's something even better there about the fact that at the end, she gets her kind of, you know, her PhD resistance when Sandy Claus says to her, if anybody's going to make a decision, listen to Sally's thoughts. She's the only one that has a brain in this town, this nightmare town. Bumpy sleigh ride, Jack. The next time you get the urge to take over someone else's holiday, I'd listen to her. She's the only one who makes any sense around this insane asylum. Skeletons. So I think that it's almost from two different perspectives. Jack has to fail to learn what he did wrong and how to better himself. Sally had to go a little too aggressive to learn what she did wrong with herself. And I don't think this comes down to a gender thing. Like, I'm not saying the man had to go hard and fail and the woman had to pull back and fail. I'm saying it's something like they both reach the same arc at the end of the story, but in slightly different narrative ways that are both equally effective, if you know what I mean. Well, to, to be honest, they're, they're actually just two different instances of the same thing, where it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, ideal, ideally you want uh, one foot in, in the land you know and one foot in the land you don't, because if you if you have both feet in the land you don't, then uh, existence is so taxing that you won't achieve much. Yeah. And if you have both feet in the land you know, then you stop growing, and to stop growing is to die. And that's a great way to put it for Sally, because she never got to set foot in Christmas Town. She was just seeing Zach's obs- uh, Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Zach. Jack's obsession with Christmas, and realized that was not good for him. Where. Jack was so steeped in Christmas for that one time in the uh, through the holiday door, and yeah, you're right. They're coming at it from different perspectives. They're almost learning the same thing from two different sides of the same coin, and that makes it all the more powerful that they end up together. I mean, at the end when they have their moment, you know, can I be with my best friend? You know, that type of thing. Well, and the the thing about her going to to save Sandy Claus from from Boogie Boogie is like that's that's her taking her her two feet both into chaos. Yes, yes. Uh, whereas, you know, her her life has mostly been secluded in this tower. So, like, in the tower, that's both feet in, in what you know. In mm-hmm. the town, that's probably one of both. 
and it, at Oogie Boogie's Mansion, she has whole feet in chaos. And it's and one of so, the most fantastic things for her to realize when, you know, I think, you know, they're watching the, um, the, the, the Halloween Town Fountain is a precursor of the Dream Catcher from Monkey Bone. Remember in the comatose world, all the creatures are watching dreams of people in that fountain? This is the same type of thing. They're watching Jack go out on Christmas run, you know, delivering presents, uh, presents on, on his Christmas Eve. She sees that everything's going wrong. And her immediate instinct is, well, okay, the only way to, f- to get Jack out of this, to break Jack out of what he's doing wrong or to convince him what he's doing wrong, I need Sandy Claus. I need the original artist. She has that agency to know that. And she goes on and tries to do it herself. Like, I love the fact that there's no setup or impetus. Like, when it cuts to Oogie Boogie in that last ten minutes of the movie, it's just Sally's legs, like, sexily dangling from the, from the door to distract Oogie Boogie. Like, Sally knew to do that and I'm just like that's fucking awesome we didn't have to have anybody tell her to do that she just knew how to use what she has that's fucking great <laughs> well right and, that, and that's actually uh, thinking about from that perspective with the fact that she had such limited experiences for her to look at a situation and come up with with actually like a, a clever or decent plan yeah um, that actually that definitely indicates that, that she's got some smarts uh, most people need experiences to be able to come up with clever plans. She's so she's so good. One of the quotes I had at the start of this movie, I, if I did not do all of Sally's song like I did, one of the quotes I loved is when Dr. Finkelstein is sewing her arm back on because she escaped at the beginning of the movie, and he's like, my dear, you can't keep doing this. And she goes, I'm restless. I can't help it. And she just wants to be out there. She just wants to experience things. Like I said before, I think it is so important that she fucking jumps, she poisons Dr. Finkelstein and leaves the lab to go to a town meeting. Dr. Finkelstein won't even let her go to a town meeting. She is a slave through and through, and she's trying to beat that every way she can. Well, and that, that just kind of, you know, reemphasizes the point that she's stuck in that place of stagnation of yes. no growth and she desperately wants out of that yep yep uh, and and that that is the human condition is that we want to be uh, if not 50 50 pretty close to 50 50 in terms of what we know and what we don't yeah and she is stuck and, and not by her own making in this case um, but but by the actions of Absolutely, absolutely. Sally's fucking awesome. I know I'm going to say this two weeks from now, Ben. Uh, Zach might be shocked to hear this. Zach knows I don't like action figures. I know I've expressed to Ben before. Man, maybe I really do want a Coraline action figure. Also, maybe I really do want a Sally action figure. I don't know. Henry Selleck and his strong, badass women. I love them. (laughs) I definitely, I think in terms of so, and this maybe is a little controversial, but in terms of making a woman strong, Sally's actually a really, a really good strong female character. Yes. Whereas, if you look at like even Wonder Woman, which does it okay, uh, Wonder Woman is basically making the woman emphasize or making the woman have the strengths of the man. Yeah, I I think you're getting at something. Wonder Woman's interesting take on this, but I think both for Sally and Coraline. I think they're created to be weak and come out strong. That's what I really like. Wonder Woman was created to be strong type of thing. You know what I mean? Sure, but uh, but the way that they're strong is distinctly, I guess, feminine, for lack of a better word. 
Okay. Like, they're strong in a way that society needs women to be strong. Like, society doesn't need women to lift weights the way that men do. Men already do that. Sure, sure. We don't need that double, uh, you know, that double up or that, that kind of redundancy of, of efficacy. We already have that. We need something else. And that's that's something that I found kind of distasteful. Is like I, I've seen a lot of a lot of the feminist movement has led to female characters that are basically just men, but they're women instead. Physical power is what you're talking yes. about, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. I've noticed like, that a lot too. Yeah. So it's like, if you really want to emphasize that femininity is good, then why not have a female character that's as strong, but as a female? Yeah. Not just. In the place of a man. Yes. Yeah. Ben, this gets back to something. Oh, God, we talked about it so long ago. But why I think in Southland Tales, The Rock is the biggest pussy because he has no idea what's going on. But Sarah Michelle Gellar is the only one that has any agency to actually do something with her character. (laughs) I don't want Sarah Michelle Gellar or Buffy or Coraline or Sally to bench press 600 pounds i want them to be smarter than our male characters (laughs) right well and to to exhibit the strength that they naturally would have like to to be a strong iconic version of of you know that and i i I know that there's there's the risk of sounding too sexist with this i don't think that women are pigeonholed into one particular thing and i don't mean to say that but I do mean that there are particular strengths that women have that men yeah. do not. Yeah. And those are the things that I think we should emphasize when making strong female characters. Absolutely. I guess, Zach, welcome to what you should expect for the rest of the Henry Selick series, because Ben and I have a lot to say about these themes. But Sally, strong female characters. Uh, any any thoughts on that? I don't I don't know I don't know where to even uh, we just unpacked a lot for you, Zach. I don't know where to where you're gonna want to jump in. <laughs> No, like I said, I, I obviously have been listening to all this and digesting it accordingly. Um, no, I, 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 I wouldn't put Sally on this pedestal that you two are. I do not think she's like I said, she's a misogynist. Cancelled. <laughs> hey, 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 misogyny goes to the person that says I don't want women to have men traced by lifting weights. Like somewhere, Brie Larson is doing like <laughs> shooter, like by I. Podcatcher. Zach's coming um, from modern misogyny. Yeah, yeah Ben. Sorry, yeah, Ben. Sorry. We're canceled. If if a woman can't bench press seven thousand pounds, we're we're fucking dead. You know. <laughs> but no, I I agree with you guys in that it's it's fun to see a character with Sally with such like I'm sorry like Sally with such agency. Yeah. Um. But um. I I think you guys are reading into this on a level that uh outside of the oh god the screenwriters nobody else probably ever has. Good. I don't, that, I, I, that's what makes us a unique podcast. Yeah. <laughs> a little meta, but sure. <laughs> no, I, I figured you'd kind of say something like that, Zach. I, like I mentioned at the start, I'm, I'm taking a way more philosophical view on uh, this movie and Henry Selleck as a whole uh, than, than I think you know the cinema audience is used to. But I, I think Ben and I, you know, we, we laid out a pretty good argument for those, uh, Sally and, and the characters like that. I, I guess, Zach, you know, uh, were there any moments you wanted to mention? Any any highlights? Anything that stood out to you? You know, I think I think the big thing that I want to focus on, because Ben and I set this up a lot in our Patreon episode about Henry Selleck, the animation style. I don't think that's something we got your opinion about, Zach. What do you think about this stop motion, like animated on twos, like this aesthetic? I know you mentioned how that's the lasting legacy, but what do you think of it? Is this something that you think is pleasant to look at? 
Uh, it's ah, God. This is the weird part. Um, it's it's hard to separate the character design versus the animation style. Okay. Um, because obviously the characters are designed to, at some level, to be grotesque. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so it's hard to separate those two. You have to really kind of focus. No, I, I think there's a charm to it. Uh, I think that's probably my way of phrasing it best, is that there's a charm here that's unique that you really don't see, um, God, nowadays. But I think there's a reason why this film has more of a lasting legacy than other Leica movies and why yeah. this will always have – a lot of the staying power of this film can easily be attributed to the fact, like we've said numerous times now, Disney will uh, merchandise this into oblivion. But I think at the same time as well that – regardless that you'll have there is a uniqueness to this style of animation yeah relative to things that will be discussed later in in the henry Selleck series and other like leica films in general yeah you bring up a good point comparing this to leica this is probably the um the you know early early egg birth of what leica becomes with Coraline and and paranorman and um and goddamn Paranorman, that that older sister character, Courtney Babcock, the the body to waist ratio did strange things to my downstairs. I loved it absolutely. Oh, oh, oh god, god, I love I love Paranorman sucks. so much. I love Paranorman so much. We'll talk about that later on. But Ben, I think there's something else I wanted to ask you. Um, you said maybe months ago, one of the last times we talked about an animated film. I can't remember if it was Rockadoodle on Patreon or if it was something else we did on Cinemodity's main feed. Um, what do you think about this stop motion? Have you? Uh, well, one, I want to know if it's grown on you since now you've seen this movie so many times. I also wanted to get your feedback on the uh, the idea that I presented. This was animated on twos. That this was made a little more jarringly than you would expect. Uh, well, just what what do you think about this animation? Period. Uh, the animation, like I said, it, it was mostly pretty fine, and that, that could have something to do with the fact that, like, Jack Skellington's movements not being entirely fluid felt right for his character, I okay. guess, because he's all shambling, and not, he's not shambling, but he's a skeleton. Like, there, there's something, you would, ag- I think you would agree with me, but correct me if I'm wrong, you, you do get at the idea that since we're living in a non-human world, animating on twos and being a little jankier makes it fit better, right? Uh, definitely, definitely since we're not shooting for realism, I'm less affected by any kind of, uh, mismatch between okay, that and okay, reality. Okay. Um, when we're shooting for realism, like, that's, that's when I have a tough time with animation that I find, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Prob- uh, I don't want to use the word problematic. It's not problematic. That composite image of the real life kid in the background and the and the animated owl in the foreground of Rockadoodle, where they can't oh. even animate the background; they just have a still image of the child. That's like offensive. I know we. I remember we agreed on that. <laughs> yeah. So, so like that that level, you know, that doesn't happen here with this movie, which is great. Um, I, I definitely, I, I didn't find it hard to look at. You know, so I think on twos worked for this movie. Uh, I think what Coraline was on ones. Coraline, yeah, um, Coraline is hardcore on ones. Yeah, yeah, Coraline is definitely more fluid than this movie, but not and not to to a degree where I'm like made motion sick or anything by by this movie. Okay, okay. Uh, right, I right. think maybe once we start getting into threes and, and God forbid fours. Uh, <laughs> Tune in next week. We're going to have a whole segment of James the Giant Peach that is animated just like Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions, Ben. (laughs) 
And, you know, to be completely honest, I'm sure that's why I remember as a kid not liking James Oh, and yeah, that, that scene is rough, but I defend it. But, yeah, that's a, that's the next week thing. Uh, we'll get into more of the animation. But, no, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, that this didn't come off to you as really jarring and stuff like that. I think a lot of it looks good. You know, to, just to get your guys' opinion, I mentioned before, that final climax, you know, when Jack Skellington is um, battling Oogie Boogie and really just trying to catch up to Oogie Boogie with the... Um, the uh, roulette wheel that they're dancing on. The, he's dodging the, um, the the jacks with not the playing card jacks with knives. The the um, slot machines with guns. What did you guys think of that? Because I find that stuff some of like that that might be like my favorite visual part of the movie. It's so colorful. It's so Henry Selleck. It's so detailed. Uh, it only lasts for maybe four or five minutes, but man, I absolutely love it in terms of animation. I I, I don't know that i have much to say about it it was it was definitely visually stimulating okay okay i have a question for you about that ben which i want to come back to but zach what did you think about were you checked out by that point or was that something you were like i like this this is engaging rather than just you know sally singing a song (laughs) no no i I guess i'm not being against anything in this movie um no that the 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 end battle between well gosh the climax between oogie and jack um no that it's it's visually striking like ben said it is unique um no i there's really not much to say about it, it it's an interesting way to end the film and especially it goes back into your whole thing about risk yes um yeah. without like kind of circling back to that topic no it's 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 visually okay. interesting and it definitely stands on its own two legs which is something oh, that uh you really again. There's a reason why this film resonates beyond the merchandise, which has kind of become yeah, my weird sort of just like hallmark to say repeatedly throughout this discussion. That's there. a great way to put it. You know, like when when you get someone like Zach or Ben to go rewatch this movie, this stuff will stand out to them. But Ben, to tie into our Patreon episode, something I put forward to you, and I remember I said this, and you were like, "I didn't think about it that way," but now I see what you're saying. Uh, on that Patreon episode, Ben and I discuss Henry Selick's one of his first short films called Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions, which is great. Everybody go check out the Patreon to hear us talk about it, get the link and watch it on YouTube, that type of stuff. But I mentioned in that discussion that I thought that was a precursor to, and Zach, get ready to roll your eyes, Adventure Time. Ben, do you remember me saying you could hear Finn going, the scissor people are attacking the photograph people? Yes, Let yeah. me put it this way, Ben. Couldn't you see Jake being stretchy, jumping over playing cards, jumping over slot machines, they're in casino world, that type of thing? Like, this, once again, I think Henry Selleck is the one of the early stepping stones to what we get from the just integration of real-life aspects into Adventure Time. Is that something that's... Uh, is it known that he was an influence to... Uh, no, nothing I've ever found explicitly, but as I've been watching all this stuff for this series, I'm just kind of like, yeah, I see, I see those seeds of Adventure Time coming out in, uh, or I, I see the seeds of Henry Selleck's work coming out in Adventure Time. And like I said, I, I've never heard anything from, you know, Pendleton Ward, the creator of Adventure Time, explicitly listing Henry Selleck as a, as an influence, but I, I feel like, if you if we actually traced it down, those UC Santa Barbara artists that all go on to work at Adventure Time, they're the same people that came from, you know, UC Santa Barbara, the UC schools that were Tim Burton's, you know, ingenues or Tim Burton inspired. I think there's a clear line between this type of animation and what we get in what Ben and I love as Adventure Time. Well, uh, such, such a line could exist without even the knowledge of the people involved. 
It, it, let me just put it this way. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that yeah. that is yeah. the case. I, I think that's just the point I'm trying to make is couldn't you see Jake stretching – through playing cards and slot machines to beat a bad guy. You know, I think that's the base level of what I'm saying is that it's so, it's so animation versus realism that it comes across to me as what we know from Adventure Time because that's all that juxtaposition of goofy animation and realism at the same time. Sure, yeah, definitely. I can see that. Uh, Quick question, Zach. Did you roll your eyes when I brought up Adventure Time? No, it's kind of par for the course. Okay, point. you're just accepting of this. this okay, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I love that ending. So, I mean, I I think I have a few more moments. I I don't want to shortchange you guys. If there are any moments you really liked or anything, you know, animation, um, comedy, songs, anything you guys wanted to point out, you know. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think you can take it over. And if I have anything, I'll jump in. Okay, okay, Zach. Anything you wanted to highlight? I, I, I share Ben's sentiment. Okay, great. That's what I like to hear. Um, <laughs> there's a scene in this movie that I have remembered my entire life that very unfortunately people I've been around seem to have forgotten. I think the, the last example this came up was maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago, one of the last times I got to spend um, any work hours in my office at CSU before you know it shut down for COVID. Um, a very common thing is that the stats department at CSU, we just have these kind of events uh, out on the, um, the statistics building lawn. And one of the animals that is very commonly found around the statistics building long lawn is a rabbit. And every time a rabbit would come up, I would point at it and go, Bunny! And nobody ever got what I was saying. And it came across as really stupid. Like, I swear some of my instructors and advisors were like, oh, God, is this dude a a retard? You know? (laughs) But I was always referencing the moment when Lock, Shock, and Barrel, instead of kidnapping Sandy Claws, they kidnap the Easter Bunny. And the Easter Bunny pops out of his sack, and he jumps up to the dude with the axe in his head. And the guy with the axe axe in his head says... Bunny! I don't know about you guys. I love that moment of this movie. That's one of like my guilty pleasures from this movie. It's so stupid. <laughs> I I kind of hated it. Oh, you hate? Okay. Did you hate it because it was so on the nose, or or what? Uh, just I I guess because of how stupid it is. Oh, it's um, so stupid. <laughs> it's it's incredibly stupid, and it just I don't know felt like low hanging fruit to me comedy wise, but. It, yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Zach, what did you, did you like that moment? Is that your favorite moment? I like that moment. It's funny. I like the whole bunny sequence where, like, Jack apologizes to him, too. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so, so sorry, sir. Take him home and then get Sandy Claus. Yeah. And, well, it even says, like, apologize to him again or something. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that moment. Ben, I know... From our from a lot of our other discussions, I get why you dislike that moment, but that moment, I think Zach and I are in the same boat. That's just so dumb and on the nose that we can't help but laugh at it. <laughs> Speaking of which, I wanted to ask you guys, do you guys know the other Halloween uh sorry, holiday doors that exist in the hinterlands? And yes, that location with the circle of trees to the holiday doors, they're called holiday doors. They're called the Hinterlands. Do you guys know the other holidays that are listed in that circle of trees? 
Was one of them St. Patrick's Day? One of them is St. Patrick's Day with a big four-leaf clover, yes. One of them, of course, is Easter, because we mentioned the Easter Bunny. Christmas and Halloween Town are crossed off the list immediately, because that's where our this movie takes place. We're missing a few. Do you guys know the others? There's two we haven't listed. There's two Thanks. Oh, yeah, Thanksgiving. Oh, there's shit, there's three we haven't listed. I even missed that on my own. Thanksgiving, absolutely, with the turkey. We're still missing two. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> One's a romantic holiday, if that it's gives you hints. Valentine's Day, yeah, okay. Yeah, thought... And St. Patrick's Day? I, I said yeah, that. Ben uh, said St. Pat. There's one left that is very, very contentious in the fans' base. And you can only see it for a brief moment in the actual movie. It got a lot more notoriety in the video games as well as Kingdom Hearts. Uh, it's a national holiday it celebrates a nation if that gives you guys any clue this is fourth of july fourth of july independence day yep we have a big firecracker on one of these trees that you could apparently go into goddamn independence day town (laughs) it's probably a scary place i i would not want to go there i think i would like to go to saint patrick's day town uh there's gotta be a lot of good booze there right (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's probably not green, though. Do you you think that should have been the sequel? Jack goes to St. Patrick's Day town and gets drunk as hell? (laughs) I mean, they could have just done Oktoberfest in Halloween town. October, uh, yeah, Oktoberfest, that's a good point, that's a good point. Um, okay, Uh, another thing I wanted to mention, this is for Zach, I mentioned it briefly earlier. We get the great character, which does appear in the Kingdom Hearts games, which I absolutely love, he's so minor. Zero the dog! Jack's little dog, ghost dog, ghost dog. Now, Ben, before I get Zach's thoughts on this, I just want to relate to you. There was an episode that's come out a few weeks prior to this, one of our our near end of the um, the, uh, 2001 Fort Year. Zach and I discussed a movie called The Others. And it was it was a landmark moment because we actually did an episode inside of an episode. Like the theme song music plays again in the middle of the episode. It's a really crazy thing uh, that I hope people liked. But there's a moment where Zach and I just say the words ghost cat to each other and then giggle for 90 seconds straight. Like Zach and I lost our minds about ghost cat. Just, I, I don't know if that explains it to you, Ben. I just wanted to let you know that was a thing. Zach, what are your thoughts about ghost dog? <laughs> no one is just seeing Ghost Cat. I mean, but it, I, I, oh, the funniness of Ghost Cat, which just once again to recap our audience and for Ben, it's a, it's a, it's a haunted cat, demon cat that haunts Washington D.C. and is able to promonetize, you know, like Minority Report style national tragedies. I think something like that. Ghost Cat was wonderful. Ghost Dog is good dog. Ghost Cat is demon cat. Ghost Dog is good dog. Zach. <laughs> Zero's a lot of fun, but uh, Ghost Cat. No, you didn't. Talk about, it's talking about ambiguity again. You ghost didn't cat. latch onto that. You didn't latch onto Ghost Dog at all. Okay, okay, that's fair. I, I kind of, I kind of feel the same way. Ghost Cat is almost uh, incomparable. Incomparable. Um, I think then the only other thing I wanted to mention the uh, just the the last little bit of this movie is that I really love the end. Just to maybe put the bow on this because you guys have thrown it over to me i think with everything i've said about the theme of this movie my favorite ribbon on top my favorite cherry on top my favorite bow whatever you want to call it is that when we get snow in halloween town at the end 
I think that's the best encapsulation of combining fields of art rather than using one to take over the other. That Halloween Town gets to experience snow, and we know at the end of the day that Halloween Town has been forever changed by Jesus Christ, Jack's foray into another field. What do you think? That's poetic. Have I exhausted you guys to your your extent? (laughs) Have I ran out your stamina bars? Well, with that all being said, I'm so glad we got to start off with the Henry Selleck series. We are out of the 2001 Fort Year. Not that I didn't love it, Zach. Don't get us wrong. But that brings us to our questions, Cinemodities and Late Night. I think I'm not going to be surprising with any of these, so I'm going to throw it over to you guys first. And Ben, I want to know, Cinemodities and Late Night, and also, if you can answer these questions by also throwing into our audience... Do you think this movie sucks a lot of dick anymore? <laughs> That's the arc of this episode everybody's waiting to hear about. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Cinemodity, I guess. It's, it's a little <laughs> odd. I, I don't know. I, I'm not feeling too strongly one way or the other about that. Okay. Late night. It's still going to be a hard no for me. Um, Is that because it sucks a lot of dick? I think it sucks a medium amount of dick. Damn. Uh, I, I I think that there there's an appropriate level of story depth that when you really get into it and break it down, you, you can have uh, you know a good interaction with somebody watching this movie. But if you're watching this movie to just watch a movie and chill, it's not interesting. Ben, ben I think you're hitting the nail on that. This might be like your one of your prime motifs for cinemodities, whether it be on the main feed or the Patreon. I feel like most times we talk about something I choose, you say, I really fucking hated watching this movie, but I liked talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely pretty common. Okay, um, okay, right on, right on. We definitely have different tastes in movies that are enjoyable to watch yeah. to some degree. Yep, I mean, the truth. Yeah, <laughs> there's some overlap, but it's not not by any means the bulk. Yeah, and as we know, the the primary overlap is that we both think Southland Tales is a masterpiece and is the greatest movie ever. Okay, Zach, what do you think? <laughs> Can't even say that with a straight face. Zach, Cinemodities and Late Night. <laughs> no, when it comes to Cinemodity, Late Night status. Uh, late night, I'm going to say no. It's too ubiquitous. Unless you can somehow find someone that's been like living. Uh, Deep, deep in the annals of uh, Halloween Town that has not seen this film. <laughs> um, as for Cinemati, I, it has to be a yes. It's too unique. Um, there's never been anything quite like this. Um, and, and it's probably even like things that are like obviously the rest of the series in the Henry Selleck series. You're going to be hard pressed to find something that duplicates this sure. in, in this series or just outside of it. It's a work in and of itself. Fair, fair. No, okay. Well, and like I said at the start, this is not going to be a surprise. Cinemodities for Rob. Oh, yes. Oh, it's visually interesting. It's a great story, a wonderful theme, a movie that I want to yell at people about if this episode did not make that clear to our audience. And late night, absolutely. Zach, I know, I know that we've said a lot about the the one of the the creeds of late night movies is that you cannot watch this as a rewatch for all parties. You should definitely be showing it to somebody who has never seen it for the first time. This might be the first movie we've encountered where I want to break that rule because even if you've seen this movie before, I want to show it to you again and yell at you about it. 
I want to fucking sing Sally's song to you while it's on and explain to you how poignant that is. So I'm going, yeah, to Cinemodities. I'm going absolutely to Late Night. This is a great goddamn movie. It's a great kickoff after the four year. And then that brings us to Snacks. I got a few snacks. I think the first one I want to throw over is one that we get very early on in the movie. One that we should use and adopt for our restaurant. The most blood drained in a single evening award. People have to be getting their blood drained in our restaurant, whether it be through means to serve blood or just people trapped in the restaurant. Why don't we include this as a reward? What do you think? (laughs) Why not, Rob? Why not? Why not? Talk about Zach out of steam. That that why not answer gave it perfectly. <laughs> the other one I'll give for authority, you guys, I would love to have Sally's Soup, as I called it. The one she makes with, uh, you know, wormwort, um, uh, frog, frog's breath. The one that she makes Dr. Finkelstein to knock him out. I would love people in our restaurant to order a soup that knocks them out. Isn't that be great? <laughs> I just want to give them the spoon that has holes in it. Yes. No, that's not allowed, Zach. We need them to drink the soup. Maybe our waiters would have the soup with the or the spoon with the holes in it, you know, to to prove to our our guests that it's not poisonous. <laughs> and they would do it just as egregiously, where they they do the whole scoop, they let it drain, and then go, mmm, you know. <laughs> okay, what did what did you guys have for snacks? I got I got a few more, but I had to throw it over to you guys. What do you what do you got for snacks at the restaurant? I'm excited for this one. I want to eat Oogie Boogie. Bugs? I, I just like he looks delicious. Like I got like, in not bug form or in sack form. In sack form, like he looks like like, like a giant just like like pillow what? of candy. Ben, ben, are you getting? Are you understanding this? <laughs> Zach, Zach is like, I want to eat a burlap sack. Are you with? Are yeah, you, that sounds really weird. You what can, are you saying to us right now? In a burlap sack. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, well, this is out of nowhere. I never expected this. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, let's eat some candied bugs, which we've talked about plenty of times before. But what What do you do, – do you think you have teeth strong enough to chew through a sack? I'm just – hey, hey, man, I'm leaving it. Much like Rob's uh, dislike for this film, I'm keeping it ambiguous. I'm just saying <laughs> I think for some reason he just – I think it's the neon coloring. It's just very exciting, and I think it would make a fantastic oh. snack. What, what's in the burlap, or what, even if it's it's just made to look like that. I remember back in the early days of the Cinemodies, oh. it was the idea of making baked goods in the shape of these characters, or our specific characters and objects from the film. Heck, it can be that. Heck, it can be a burlap sack that's neon green. I'm just intrigued, and I think we should go down that path. I'm going to put what you said in the spreadsheet, but for my own well-being, for the rest of Cinemodities, I'm going to think to myself that you want to serve people a burlap sack, not that you want to eat a burlap sack, because that's how you phrase it, and that's really weird, Zach. All the above. I'll take it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. This is what three hours of philosophy on Nightmare Before Christmas does to somebody. I just want to eat a burlap sack to put me out of my misery. (laughs) <laughs> that's okay that's fair ben what did you have anything for the restaurant <laughs> uh, i kind of like the frog juice or frog breath and i also uh, i'm intrigued by this this butterfly in a bottle thing oh, yeah. uh, i think we could put any number of things in bottles as, as rob knows and really i guess i'm sure the audience knows now too i like to take things and then just shove other things in there uh and so here <laughs> we're gonna have like snakes in a bottle 
worms in a bottle, boogies in a bottle. I thought you were going to say, Ben, that you like the fact that Jack opened up a wine bottle and, like, the vapors came out and formed a butterfly. I thought you were going to say, we like that because we've seen Finn and Jake in Adventure Time open bottles and vapors form different things. Well, yeah, that's true, Another Adventure Time crossover, but, you know, you're going straight on for... Well, fuck it. <laughs> like, let's just drink this shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever you want in a bottle. Just like maybe they could even order like special things, like a family photo in a bottle. Um, <laughs> like you give us the picture, we make it happen. That kind of thing. Ooh, I like that. Okay, okay, right on, right on. I think uh, speaking of also... that, uh, well, I just want to say fog juice because you mentioned oh, the yeah, frog's sure. breath. I I would love. To not only use fog juice to cause fog, I really want to know what happens if somebody drinks fog juice. <laughs> Probably a lot of farting, I would imagine. And yeah, I'm that's what I was thinking. Are your are your so. farts going to give off vapors? Like, you know, is this is this going to be the the goofiest nonsense we've ever seen? <laughs> it's definitely some intestinal discomfort, um, you know, coming their way. Yeah, yeah. Something else, I think we should have a store in in the in the Cinemodities restaurant that over uh, commercializes whatever we want at any time. Just like pick a movie and we'll just like fucking stock the shelves with action figures that don't make sense from that movie. <laughs> like I really love minor characters. That. <laughs> like background characters. Like people that you see behind the yellow tape in a police at a police crime scene, just like action figures from the movie. Like see, kind of see, Ben, I know you're describing something very comical, and I appreciate it, but when you say we fill the shelves with background action figures, Zach is going, that's just the life of a Star Wars toy collector. <laughs> 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 Am I wrong, Zach? <laughs> nope. Oh, that's good. That's I like how good. Ben essentially is describing like like an outlet warehouse for like toys. <laughs> you know that character you saw on screen for three seconds? Fucking eighty of those on the back shelves. Do it. <laughs> Ben's like, have you ever seen Ollie's like bargain outlet? I want that in the Cinemodies <laughs> restaurant. Oh, that's good. That's good. I think the the only other one I had is a, is a, a big one. We've been mentioning, you know, Oogie Boogie's Lair, the whole roulette wheel mixed with the uh, the molten lava at the middle, the um the the cards coming up and shaking their knives, the the slot machines that shoot guns. I want that whole thing, like booby traps and all, death devices, booby traps and all, in the sin emodities portion of the restaurant. And I want to even go as far to say, get rid of any stupid fucking McDonald's-type play place we have. Just put this in there. Hell yeah. What do you think? Don't be knocking the play place. (laughs) I think a little more dangerous of an attraction... Because, of, I mean, like, the bacteria petting zoo isn't dangerous enough in the Cine Maddie's portion of the restaurant. But I think Oogie Boogie's Lair would be a really cool addition. I, I, I Yes, but do not take anything out. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it. Zach doesn't like removing. Okay. Uh, that was all I had. Any of you guys had any other final snacks or anything like that? Nope. Nope, I'm good to go. Okay, well, then, that brings us to three things. One, easy, next week, next film in Henry Selick's filmography, James and the Giant Peach. Can't wait to get to that one. I am a huge fan of that movie. Can't wait to hear what Ben and Zach have to say about it. The other thing, once again, 
just to make sure everybody knows. If you want to hear a little more detail and a little more content about what Henry Selleck has done prior to The Nightmare Before Christmas and what he was unable to do after Coraline, Ben and I discuss Henry Selleck to great detail over on the Cinemodities Patreon, which I recommend everybody goes check out not only to support the podcast by subscribing, but also to get extra content that they can listen to, one of which will benefit this series. Ben, anything you want to say about the Patreon? Come check it out. We appreciate your continued support. Uh, we've got a few loyal patrons who have been paying the bills for all you other freeloaders to hear this Cinemodities main feed content, and I'm just saying it's time for you uh, to pay your fair share. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, come check it out. We really do appreciate any and all contribution that you feel is worthwhile uh, to give to us for what we do. Uh, we enjoy making this content. We're happy to have you as listeners, uh, despite how much we alienate you at all times. And, uh, you know, we want you to get the best out of your life and your time listening to Cinemodities. And if that is checking out the Patreon and getting a little bit closer of a look at me and Rob, and some of the crazy things that we say to each other, uh, that, that's, I think that's a, a good good way to spend your time. And I really hope that you consider it. And, and I think I'm speaking for both of us, Ben and I, and I, I hope Zach is on this train as well. Don't hate us for discussing the new Space Jam. Okay, don't don't see that the new Space Jam was one of our episodes and think we sold out. No, it's a hate fest through and through. Don't don't be that angry at us about new Space Jam. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, that's definitely an episode that you should come check out. Uh, see exactly why that movie's a war crime, and you know, hear us rant about it, and you know, maybe maybe find out some things to hate that you didn't recognize when you watched it yourself, and maybe tell us some things to hate that we didn't recognize in our episode. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Where, and you do have a direct channel of communication uh, with us at the Patreon. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think with all that being said then, the only thing comes into play now is how do we end this episode? And uh, Play Zach's suicide gunshot in reverse. Wh- yes. Wh- okay, you, you're not... <laughs> you, you put a good thing forward there. My thought was... As self-indulgent as I am, what do you guys oh think boy, about never. if I sing Sally's song again, you guys do the, the talking over it, and I just reverse that all at the end? What do you think? Uh, I'm not a I think you should have to sing it in reverse. I, oh, that is – I did not practice for that. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> okay, well, how about this? How about – okay, may, I didn't practice for this. How about I make all of you pull up the Kidnap the Sandy Claws lyrics? I'll do the shock parts. No, I'll do the barrel parts. Zach will do the shock, and Ben will do the lock. And you want to reverse that? No, because that'll take us 80 fucking years because nobody's practiced that. So how about okay. this? We'll play this out in reverse. You guys make as much fun as you want of me. I just want to say... No, Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
her face down for no. my blue nose. Hell, all the rest is still being the fan of what's happening. That's really sad. Yeah.